This is a becoming creature. I am your host, Nick, and I am here for a second time with friendly, ambitious nerd, Visa Khan Virasami. Visa is a prolific writer, blogger, YouTuber, musician, and much more. Visa pioneered his own style of writing on Twitter, which spawned apps like ThreadHelper to help others write like him. If you're curious about Visa, you should buy his book titled Friendly, Ambitious Nerd, which you can find on his website at visaconv.com. And you should follow him on Twitter at VisaConV. I also recommend you listen to our initial interview on episode number 15 of A Becoming Creature. Once again, it is a great pleasure to have you on the show, Visa. Thanks for having me, Nick. How many, how many episodes have you done since the last one? Uh, I, think, I think I'm at seven since nice. the 15th. So this yeah. will be like 22, 23. Yes. So how did the no coffee, no cigarettes thing go uh, a few weeks ago as, as I'm now downing like a pot of coffee? <laughs> so I, was, I went like a day without cigarettes and the next day I was smoking again. And I went about three days without coffee and mm-hmm. it, was, it was all right. Um, you know, I, I, but I, f- I couldn't work. I felt like I was, I, I slept very, very well the, the first couple of days. But I was starting to get stressed that I wasn't making progress on my book. And I think I will try it again after I publish. But uh, yeah, in the meantime, it's coffee again. Yeah, I heard it's a not so well hidden secret that stimulants are like the key to productivity. Like everybody <laughs> is all these like product productivity tips and tricks. And, and there's like this whole productivity Twitter. And then high level executives will just like take speed. Um <laughs> So I, th- I think there must be something to that. Yeah, there are even yeah. interesting interesting arguments about how, you know, like the role of coffee in, in civilization, like hundreds of years ago <laughs> when they first, yeah. I think the, the Arab golden age coincided with when they first started making coffee and doing cafes. So I recently wrote that there is something really strange that happens on Twitter, which is mm-hmm. a flattening of barriers to social access. Mm-hmm. You can compare Twitter to like Manhattan, where social clubs have real barriers. Mm. Uh, in in like Manhattan, someone with one million dollars spends time with like a different circle of people than right. someone with ten million dollars. It's it's crazy. Right. So uh, you responded to my comment by writing that I do what I do because I believe that the possibility space on Twitter continues to be grotesquely underappreciated and undervalued. To give a bit of background to the listener on Twitter, I made some mediocre tweet that got like 12 likes, but it also got a reply from a prolific journalist, despite my having no prior interactions with them. On other occasions, I've had conversations with the owner of arguably the best restaurant in America. I'm sure, Visa, that you've had significantly more of these sorts of interactions than I have. So my first question to you is, what is special about Twitter compared to real life and other social platforms? Right. Yeah. So I guess the amazing thing is that you can see, you can see what people are saying and you can respond to it directly, which again, like with your, with your example of people with different amounts of money uh, being in different social circles, like 
they will be, you know, they'll be having dinner at a restaurant or a private dinner party and you can't see what they're saying. And, and you know, it's... Uh, whereas with Twitter, it's like the... It's an international public square for any thought that any person might have anywhere at any time, which is insane. But And we, we haven't yet calibrated our intuitions for this. And while maybe there are some individuals who have, I think our broader kind of uh, social intuitions have not caught up. This makes me think that like DMs mm-hmm. and uh, or which are direct messages and group chats are they seem like obscenely bad as far as the way they're designed. But uh, this could be intentional to keep people on like the public Twitter space that if they were too good, then maybe people would be using them a lot more than the public Twitter space. Well, yeah, so I, I'm in two minds about it. I do think that, you know, privacy is important. I do think that people should have access to a diversity of spaces because there are some things that, you know, you're not sure about yourself yet and you're still, you just want to think out loud and you want to think about maybe difficult topics or contentious things. And so not everything should necessarily be public. And I mm-hmm. do think that we are kind of living through a transition stage where people have not yet learned to to navigate that skillfully and it's like a new kind of literacy right like understanding how to navigate having access to to like global public spaces that are more public than our intuitions have prepared us for so mm-hmm. people sometimes you know go on twitter and they don't have a lot of followers and they don't think of themselves as public figures or public actors and they might just be complaining about something and in their mind they're thinking that that only a few of their friends are going to see it but then you are always like two or three quote tweets and retweets away from becoming the main character right so we have not yet uh calibrated for that but it seems like there's really two roles there's like the completely random role where someone with like 2000 followers will get a tweet that gets like a million likes and that that's that's like a roll of the dice like they won the lottery that day and then mm-hmm. you have people that are kind of uh like like mike lashcroft where they are creating a product they're doing mm-hmm. something intentionally yeah. day after day after day and it's it's cultivated and that's building an audience um i think a lot of people are kind of at the slot machine on twitter just trying yes. to get, trying trying to win that lottery yeah. Um, and it's it's a lot more work to be doing this intentional thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have anything to say about kind of cultivating an audience and like why you might want to cultivate an audience? Uh, yeah, because it, it, different people come to this with different um, assumptions, different expectations, mm-hmm. different goals. And, um, you know, I, I I have always been someone who has wanted to participate i would say in in public space so it's it's interesting because as you grow your audience um you will encounter responses to your journey or to your you know whatever how you want to describe it you'll encounter different responses that reveal different assumptions different beliefs different experiences that people have had so some people see what I'm doing and they think, oh, wow, what an, what an arrogant, narcissistic, self-obsessed, you know, glory-seeking individual. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to deny that and denounce it completely because I think that would be kind of dishonest. But it's not how I think about it. You know, it's not how I frame it. Like, I, I always think of myself as, I, when I was a child, I loved books, I loved libraries, and I just wanted to participate in that. And just the idea of, you know, 
you, the internet is like a like a super massive library and it's it's you can contribute to it and you can you know you can you can basically pick out whatever books you like from the internet and you can respond to them and the authors of the books can respond back and yeah i always just to me it's play it's fun it's exploration and uh, I have gotten a lot of people who see what I'm doing and see where I'm coming from with what I'm doing and they respond in kind, which is which is um, tremendous. It's so beautiful. It feels like, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't think I would have gotten this until maybe my 40s or 50s. Like I, I was mentally prepared to, to work at this for decades and not receive uh, validation in, in this particular sense. But mm. uh, it's already happened. And so it's like, in a way, I've already won. I'm already kind of living my dream in a sense. And, and you know, the, the, the cool thing is once you, once you kind of get to experience your dream become a reality, you, on, on one hand, you see the ways in which um, the way you articulated your dream was incomplete, right? Because it's always, you know, that's, that's where you kind of mm -hmm. get a be careful what you wish for sort of wisdom, yeah. right? Like, like you thought you wanted yeah. this, but you know, because you weren't sufficiently specific, you did, or you did not realize that there's like uh, cons that come with the pros. That's part of it. Another part mm -hmm. of it is that having, you know, there's this a Steve Jobs quote where he says something in, in his interview with Playboy. He says something like, once you have the means to enact your dreams, there's a lot of responsibility in that. You know, when you're like some small unknown person and you have no audience and you have no influence or whatever, you can kind of say whatever. You know, you can say, hey, let's let's start a revolution. Let's let's uh you know remake society or whatever. And because it's it's so far from the realm of possibility, you can just say it. People might cheer you along, but it's not it's not really a big deal. It's kind of just playful fantasizing. But once you have, you know, tens of thousands of people following you and you can kind of you can kind of direct people to do things and it's there there is there is power in that and there's responsibility that comes with that and you you know it's um your your actions then become more weighty like there's there's more consequence to everything that you do which is again something i think that when you are and i don't know if this is true for everyone but it's it was true for me and it was true for a bunch of my close friends like when you feel like your life is kind of inconsequential and, and you know you can you can do the boilerplate everybody is important everybody's life matters blah 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 but there is there is this gradient of consequence with regards to a person's actions depending on where they are in some given social hierarchy or some given social context and you know it's like people want to feel more important they want to feel validated they want to feel useful and when you do step into that, you find that, oh, it comes, it comes with, with burdens, right? It comes with worries. You start yeah. to, to think about how, you know, like even doing innocuous things, like maybe you just want to introduce one person to another person, which is nice thing to do. It can have like second order consequences that you could not have seen before. And you have to kind of learn to, to grapple with that and manage that. Yeah, it's kind of like even where I'm at, if I'm a bit heedless, I'm probably not going to do too much damage to anybody. But if I was really big and I was heedless, then I could be doing um, damage, not not to just, you know, one person or a few people, but but maybe to the crowd as a whole because of network effects or something. Mm -hmm. So there there does appear to be um, this cost or or this danger associated yeah. with uh i guess i guess we could call it clout mm. um is there more you want to say about that 
Um, I would say, you know, I'm reminded of how, so when I was younger, I used to wonder, like, why are people with power and influence, why do they seem so boring? You know, like, like why do they not, why why don't we see like Tim Cook shitposting on Twitter, right? I'm sure he has fascinating thoughts and, and perspectives that the rest sure. of us don't have. But now I'm start, like having climbed the gradient a little bit, I'm starting to understand. It's like, it's it's the consequence thing. Like, uh, and you know, they become kind of a bit more clinical, a bit more cold. And it's not, it's not so much that they are intrinsically boring people, but like the, it's almost mm-hmm. like the, you know, heavy is the hit, right? Like, like anything that they do will kind of percolate and have repercussions that they cannot anticipate. And so they end up kind of um, simplifying and, and making their utterances smaller and more strategic and more. So yeah, this, this has been a recurring theme for me. Like a lot of the things that I used to think was the fault of uh, people in power or people with authority or, you know, whoever, I'm, I'm starting to realize it's increasingly a function of the environment that they're embedded in and how that environment responds to their actions. And again, it's always easy to criticize. And so the, the way to kind of put my money where my mouth is, is to accumulate, you know, uh, leverage of my own so that I can try and mm-hmm. influence things in, in a direction that I want to see things go. A little while ago... Robot said uh, there's not really much benefit in getting a large Twitter following and there are real downsides. Yeah, Just enjoy yourself and don't worry about the rest. He then continued to say, if you tweet with a mission and want to monetize somehow, this advice may not apply. Mm-hmm. But in another sense, I think it does. I will never monetize for a bunch of reasons. One of those is that the necessary work seems spiritually fraught what Mm. is your what is your take on this um i I feel like you agree that there's like not not a huge benefit to getting larger that there that at least it's it's balanced by these costs Mm -hmm. but can you say a little bit about um how what you see the purposes of cultivating an audience and uh if you have anything to say about it being spiritually fraught yeah, so I think Igan and I are quite um, like minds on this. Like, so I, I did a podcast with him once, and we kind of nerded out about storytelling and and um, just being just being a thoughtful person, right? Like, just in general, like we both have that in common. We both grew up reading a lot of books, and we, I think, we both have a sense of of public spiritedness. And mm-hmm. yeah, so if you're trying to build an audience and you don't know what you want or you don't have a very precise sense of what you want, then that's kind of dangerous because, you know, if you're approaching it as I want to see the number go up, right? I want to see the number of followers I have go up. Um, you will be, and, and you don't have strong, you know, uh, I don't know if I want to say a moral sense or a virtuous sense, but if you just don't have strong opinions, let's say you don't really care, you just kind of, you're just some dude and you just kind of want to grow your audience. If you're not paying attention and you're not being mindful about it, it's very easy to get swept up in, you know, you, you post like a dozen different tweets and then you notice that a couple of those tweets seem to get you more followers. It's usually the more controversial tweets. It's usually the more, you know, it's kind of hot, if that makes sense. It's like, a, it's just stuff that is contentious. And, mm-hmm. you know, so like, like like that's why we have, you know, tabloids and, and celebrity culture and whatever. Like, it doesn't need to be malicious. It doesn't need to be like somebody's trying to... There's another great Steve Jobs quote that when he was at Next, before he went back to Apple, he was saying something like, uh, you know, you, you, you want to believe that 
the media is conspiring to keep people dumb that there's some you know secret secret cabal of of like evil men who are like oh let's make let's continue to feed the masses with with you know dumb content so that they can't like there's no revolution or whatever but then um you you get involved and you try to do things differently and you realize that the you know it's the market isn't so uh, manipulative it's it's almost dumb it just gives people what they want and people want drama people want like if if you're responding to market feedback right the market feedback mm-hmm. will will direct you to drama and 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 um, you know that kind of outrage content and so even you know the, like a while ago there was like a big uh, furore about youtube uh kind of recommending you know, flat earth content, conspiracy content, that kind of things. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. the assumption people had was, oh, YouTube is like deliberately, you know, kind of trying to radicalize people. I don't think that's yeah. exactly correct. I think really it's just, um, you know, if they set up their recommendation engine to recommend whatever content was stickiest for people, whatever people seem to be enjoying the most, in this in- enjoyment here being one of the videos that people actually watch and watch all the way through and post, post replies and share, like it happens to be the controversial and conspiracy theory type stuff. And when you realize that, that's when, and, and if you have, you know, if at this point you still don't have opinions, then you become like a useful idiot in a sense, right? Like you just, as a person trying to increase your audience, you're going to end up making more and more controversial content, cringe reacts. Like you might do these things, you know, as a, as an, as a regular person living a regular life, like everybody has a dark side. Everybody has, you know, you, you might feel bad a little bit laughing at someone's misfortune, but it's you still laugh, right? Like it's it's just a pretty human yeah. thing to do. But once you become someone with like a YouTube channel, for example, and you make ten videos, and one of them happens to be slightly mean spirited, and that's the one that blows up, right? And and like all your other content about trying to be, you know, be a good person, have a have playing with your dog, you know, having a good time with your friends, and then it's the mean spirited content that blows up you might then yeah. feel like it's a message from the audience telling you that that's what they want more of. And then if you do more mm-hmm. of that, like, you know, hop, skip, jump, next thing you know, you have an entire channel with like 100 videos of extremely cringe and, you know, outrage bait. And now you have like 10,000 people who are in your comments kind of braying and screaming for blood, right? And and, and you feel, you you may, so here at this point, different people have different responses. Some people feel like, oh, this is what I'm, I'm meant to do, right? This is what the, mm-hmm. I have. And some people might be like, oh no, I don't really like this. But at that point, it's like, you can't really unsummon a demon. Like once you've summoned that kind of outrage and bloodlust, it's like the, once the, the crowd is stirred up into a frenzy, like uh, they will then accuse you of not doing enough, and they might even, you know, there might be some charismatic leader amongst the the comments section who will be like, you know what, fuck this, let's let's move over and make our own <laughs> uh, outrage space, and then it just mm-hmm. gets radicalized in of itself. And so, if anybody who wants to do anything at scale is gonna eventually have to deal with this problem, and it's better to get ahead of the problem before you have it, and kind of be deliberate about you know, like discouraging it and encouraging what you want to see more of. So it sounds like you're talking a little bit about the intersection of fortune and intentionality. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of these platforms, like when you're when you're seeing this um, kind of listicle or, or BuzzFeed or, or grabby headline, mm-hmm. they're just trying to turn up the volume on the memes themselves. Mm. And that and when you maximize that, it doesn't really matter what the meme is because they just want the clicks, right? Yeah. But um, 
Philosopher King Naval Ravikant talks about how a person doesn't really create luck, but they can increase their exposure to it mm -hmm. through preparation, effort, and uniqueness. Uh, so how do you think about one's success or fortune, how that's shaped by how they use a platform like Twitter, um, where in order to get these followers or, or get this attention, you kind of have to balance um, your intentionality with, I guess, these these attempts at the lottery. Right. So I N Naval's quotes come from uh, a book called uh, Chance. Uh, I can't remember the specific title, but it's it's a book by, I think, James Austin, if I got the name right. And he, he talks about how there are four kinds of luck. And it's... Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if I can remember everything off the top of my head, but it's like blind luck, which is when luck just like, you know, being born into a wealthy family. And then there's, there's like layers and layers of luck based on how much effort you put into kind of architecting the, you know, so the way I think about it is it's like you can build webs, like a spider web to catch luck. And right. I, I think um, the, the variable that most people don't sufficiently consider is time. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's like you can, you, the, the problem as I see it with a lot of, you know, whether it's media organizations or with people trying to build an audience is that, you know, I think there's, you can grow, you can try to grow fast and, um, what's the third variable? There's like, there's like three variables and the mistake is that everyone tries to do things quickly. And when you try to do things quickly, uh, there's like additional costs that get incurred. And the way to avoid that cost is, oh, I guess expensive is the other thing. So it's like, if you want to grow fast and well, you have to expend a lot of time and energy and effort to to kind of um, manage that audience or manage that. Even, even if you're like hiring for a company, right? Like if you're building a business or you're building a, a, a church or whatever it is that you want to build that involves people. If you want to grow fast, um, it's very volatile and, and I would advise against it. I think, I think like as a, it's funny, we were talking about caffeine earlier and speed. Yeah. And I do think that we have uh, like a civilizational kind of addiction to, to speed, mean, meaning literal like day-to-day uh, -day moving fast speed. And mm. so the, the tragedy that I see, if you, if you examine and observe like, just keep notes, take, take notes on the news for like a decade. You'll see that there are a lot of people who attempt ambitious things, but they try to get it done very fast. You know, so like in startup culture, it's like raising a lot of money from a VC and then trying to grow really, really fast. And then it explodes. It like, it, uh, there's too much, there's too much kind of um, blandness or there's too much noise and it's just, it gets overwhelming. It, it goes, it slips out of your hands. And mm -hmm. the way to, to avoid that is to be willing to play very long games and to, to be willing to take very long for things to, to work out. And the, the, the reason that's good is because you, you bore the, the kind of demagogue types. You know? So there are people who want drama now. They want, they want chaos now. And uh, if you want to do anything substantial, um, you don't want these people in... So I mean, so it's debatable. Some people feel that you can kind of like tame the dragon and try and ride it and try and... You know, uh, it's just like, yeah, you know, like maybe like, like summon a little bit of a demon and you hope that it, it, it works out in your favor. I'm kind mm -hmm. of, uh, I'm pretty conservative on this front. I think that anytime you kind of involve people or energy that is very 
um, demonic. <laughs> In my mind, I say demonic. I don't. I don't. I don't know how other people describe it. Um, then it it just becomes very volatile. You can't control it, and it gets it it goes all over the place. Whereas if you commit and you say I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to play a fifty year long game, right? I'm trying to, I'm trying to build cathedrals in the long run, and we're going to make progress a little bit once every month for for fifty years. Um, people who come in expecting drama and action, like they get bored after the first couple of months and they move on to wherever the chaos is, and then you can actually get real work done. And uh, I think that this class of wisdom. Is is very quiet, you know. I, I don't I don't want to say it's been lost. I'm sure it still exists, but it because the progress is slow and it's not very dramatic. People don't see it in like the day to day news cycles. So I want to tie this back to accessibility while staying on topic. And documentarian Ken Burns once said of his father that he was the smartest person I know, but he was a Maserati without a clutch. He knew everything, but didn't have the way, the tools, the chemistry, whatever you want to call it, to put that stuff into gear. Ken Burns is talking about intelligence, but it's common for a variety of resources to be squandered. I see plenty of people with a large number of followers who haven't put anything into gear. On the other hand, I believe you met James Clear, productivity mm -hmm. blogger and author of the New York Times best-selling book, Atomic Habits. Yeah. James is a great example of someone that cultivated a following and was able to leverage that into a productive career. What is the key difference between people that sit on their resources and the people that actively leverage Twitter's accessibility to put their stuff into gear? Yeah, James is great. He's uh, his he. You know, I I worried that when I was gonna meet him, that he might be, you know, like 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 you like a, a caricature of himself maybe. But he's a very thoughtful, intelligent, smart guy. Like he he's you know he knows what he's doing. Uh, you ask what's the difference? I I think the important thing is to have a sense of your own vision, which is a very internal thing. I, I'm thinking now about this old essay called um the if you search uh, in the leadership and solitude, I think it should be the first search result. Actually, let me, let me look it up. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and it's just, it, it seems like a paradox, sort of, that solitude and leadership. Uh, it seems like a paradox because you would think that leadership is you have to be with people, right? You have to talk to other right. people, which, which is still something you should do. But there, there, there's a paradox where... You know, what people look for in a leader, I think, is is values, right? It's virtue. It's a sense of what is right and not what is necessarily popular in the short run. Because, you know, hive minds and crowd think can be great sometimes, but it, it ebb and, ebbs and flows very dramatically because sentiment, you know, it spreads and shifts and percolates and it, get, it can get be very wild. And so I think... Um, Everybody should do this, but it's especially true if you're in some kind of leadership role or position, uh, which is to go out into the silence, whatever that means for you, whether it means, you know, meditation or, or like wandering in the woods and, and whatnot. But go somewhere where you aren't disturbed by other people and just kind of sit and be with yourself and think about what you really, really want, what you really respect and admire and what, you know, like what you would like your life's work to be when you look back you know i i like to use like a like a 
funeral thought experiment or like a your your last birthday party. Like imagine you're you're ninety years old and you've lived a good, happy, fulfilling, satisfying life. And like who's who's at your party, right? Who's who's there? What nice things are they saying about you? You know, what cool, mm-hmm. wonderful outcomes have you have you um, created? And then you work backwards from there. Like, like, what do I have to do to become that version of myself? And so it's kind of like a like a regret minimization framework because I think when you think, when you see that big picture, um, it becomes clearer what you should do. I remember I was doing, I was hosting a salon a while, a few months ago, and uh, I can't remember what the salon was about. But I remember uh, we were talk, we were discussing decision making at some point, and and somebody asked a question, and for some reason I got really heated, and I found myself saying. Uh, do you want to increase your lifetime earnings, like your 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 financial earnings, by five percent, or do you want to live fucking gloriously? You know, like, <laughs> and and I think I think he was asking something like, oh, but you know, should I do this thing if I, if it's like a career right. opportunity? And the thing the, the thing is when the thing I love, and I feel like that question didn't come from from me. I feel like it came from somewhere. I might be remixing something somebody else said. But when it came out mm-hmm. of me, it was it was very it was very passionate and like everyone in the, in the Zoom, everyone in the Zoom was like, whoa. <laughs> it's like it's one, of those, <laughs> awesome. one of those moments. And even as I said it, I found myself thinking, you know, like it's a cool thing to say and I don't think I live up to that, to the ideal that that question invites you to live up to. Right, which is that which is that day to day life. You wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I got these bills to pay. I got this calendar commitments. I got you know all this shit." <laughs> that is the frustration of everyday life. That every the ordeal of everyday life that everyone has to deal right. with, right? And so that's the thing. You you want to go away into this into solitude and have several at least several hours to yourself, right? Where you can sit and be like, "What would living fucking gloriously mean to me?" You know, like what's the what's and for some people it's like you know maybe you want to have a child, maybe you want to be a parent, and but then there's there's never the right time, right? Like there's always oh I gotta gotta I have this work stuff going on and it's a pandemic happening, and it's like yeah it's about that you know and and it translates all the way through like how when you have a group of people with you, I I have been rereading and recommending that people read um, the funeral oration of Pericles. So Pericles is this guy from Athens, like way back during the age of, of Socrates. And he was a guy responsible for the building of the Parthenon. And he was like just this very cool. I mean, I, I don't know how much of it is like historical PR, like they make him look better than he is, maybe. But he did mm-hmm. apparently give a really, really good speech. You can look it up. And it's like it begins with, uh, you know, we honor the ancestors for they are the ones who have allowed us to be here. And then he talks about, you know, the virtues of. Like he just is this very abundant mindset, very rousing speech that like no politician today seems to be capable of giving, uh, and right. m- maybe it's it's I'm not I don't know if I want to say that oh there are no men like Pericles anymore, but it could be that that the role of public figures is such that you know a politician if a politician tried to give a Pericles speech it probably would seem kind of smarmy and fake, but in Pericles' mm-hmm. case he was described as the first citizen of Athens, so he wasn't actually mm-hmm. like. A dictator or whatever he was just some i mean i don't know i don't know the his, like historians will probably argue about this so i don't want to make any specific claims about what exactly pericles is but that speech is worth reading because it's so inspiring he's really like we are an example to our neighbors we throw our doors open for anyone to come and learn from us you know we have entertainment and games and we we behave you know well not out of not because the law compels us to but because we respect each other's autonomy and I, i'm remixing what he said with some of my own talking points but like it's just when I went, when I reread that, I feel like, oh my god! Like we need, like where is this? Where is this spirit 
in our modern life. You know, something that yeah. people aspire to greatness and it isn't, you know, like we're not squabbling over pieces of the pie, but like trying to grow it for everyone. I'm thinking about everything you're saying. And um, my takeaway is that like art and creativity isn't mm -hmm. the result of committee effort. Yeah. Now, like for, for us to create any art, it needs to be grounded in some kind of a, a culture or, or background. It can't be too far outside. Otherwise, it's not like interpretable. Mm. Um, but when we're creating we can't do this by committee. And it, it kind of seems like when we're too connected, when we're on Facebook all the time, when we're on Twitter all the time, um, we're not able to be sufficiently distanced from any of that to do anything interesting or novel. And um, this is connected to something that you've said before, which is basically that people need to go out into the world and mm. then bring things back to the tribe. And yeah. this is how value is created. Um, it's kind of like the the tribe is creating the individual, but then the individual is creating the opportunity to create or find something wonderful. Exactly. And this this five percent thing you're talking about, like that's what committees do, right? Yeah. So that's what groups do by themselves. Is they're like, uh, you know, how can we make the bike shed five percent cheaper? Yeah it requires that individual to step back and be like, what is truly important right now? I, I really like this concept of solitude and mm. exceptionalism. Mm. And um, so what, what do you think is the main dynamic between being individual and like exercising your agency versus um, like doing all of that reading that you used to do and kind of integrating yourself in the culture? Yeah, I mean, I still, I still do, I still read a lot. I think, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I do have a kind of, I guess, like it oscillates. It's kind of like a seesaw thing, like a yin yang thing. It's like you, you inhale and then you exhale, right? You have day and night, mm -hmm. and yeah. So you know, in it's like in the day you meet people and you find out where how things are, where things are going, and you, you, you immerse yourself in culture, and then in the night, right? Like you kind of be alone with your thoughts and and allow allow your subconscious, I guess, to synthesize what, what you've learned from everybody around you and what, and what is missing, right? What, what wasn't said, what wasn't appreciated. And yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not, a f so there, there are always, I, I often find myself um, presenting the opposite case to any, any, any context. So I have a tweet that's like goo from my prickly friends and prickles for my gooey friends, which is like, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, if a bunch of people are very monastic, I'll be like, come on guys, let's go and talk to some people. And if a bunch of people are like, oh, you know, they're in the tavern every day for months and months, it'd be like, all right guys, like maybe each of us should just head out somewhere and, and find something different. And, you know, it's just, there's mm -hmm. always the, the opposite of the other side of the coin, right? And it's uh, yeah. there are all these beautiful quotes about how it's only when you travel away from home that you come back and you see your home with fresh eyes and you appreciate what was good about it. And you, you know, it's like it. So it's it's not even about going away, but it's almost about the return, which is like the classic hero's journey sort of of mm -hmm. mindset, like this idea of everything is for the inverse. It gets very poetic and very kind of recursive, but uh, yeah. So what was your question again? It was like, what what is the tension between the two, or how do you balance the two? I feel like there's a lot that I don't understand about the importance, and I'm learning a little bit as you're as you're talking. 
that um, I'm thinking back to something that like Adam Robinson talks about. Whereas if something's not working out, then he does the opposite. But it it like that requires a lot of courage, right? Because it's kind of like diving into the unknown. Yeah. And in doing that, we we're also creating the known and creating these niches of comfort. Yeah. But um, for for you to put goo on your prickly friends a lot of a lot of her friends aren't yeah. gonna like that That's usually true. you know because because it, it's this uncomfortable thing to be doing different things but it also seems like that is how we learn and grow so yeah. i was just thinking about you know how do we tie together this learning part with this you know agentic um isolated uh leader part the pursuit of connection Right, like it, and th- so there's like a paradox to it. There is a, a a sorrow to it, maybe a beauty to it, which is that the people who s- are serious about pursuing connection have to endure more rejection than anybody else. Like that's mm-hmm. the that's the it's like the the price that yeah. you have to pay, and it's like it, it's it it rhymes in parallel with like several versions of the same problem. One is like um you know you don't uh. There's no way to to experience uh, joy and kind and like 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 deep deep joy without kind of uh, risking things. Like you have to risk being vulnerable, which is scary, and you will get hurt for it, and you will get rejected for it. And so there is really this. Um, I want to say there's almost like a suicidality to it, which which is I, I know it's a, it's a big word to use, and it's uh it, that but it's like. To, uh, you know, there's a reason that the the opposite leaving the village in the hero's journey circle, if you look for the mm-hmm. hero's journey circle, they, they literally call it death and rebirth, right? Because it's the death of the old self and the birth of the new self. And that is, there's no way to sugarcoat that. It's like painful, uncomfortable, scary. You you may feel like you're literally dying like socially. Like you may throw, you may mm-hmm. feel like nauseous and you want to throw up. You might... It, it you know it will be the worst of your days in some ways like for for some version of yourself right and whether it's you wanna you know you wanna change your habits you wanna move to a new country you wanna break up from a relationship like all of these difficult decisions like there is a, a death in each of these things and it, there's grief and pain and um, you know so I'm working on a book that's kind of about this and the 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 challenging thing is that you know people are kind of asking. You know, I'm I'm not very happy with my life. It's not very it's not fun. I'm not enjoying myself. And I would like to to have more, right? I would like to be better. And the the reason that a lot of these things kind of a lot of the media that comes up to to kind of meet that is doesn't feel like it helps is because the thing that you need to do is the scary, painful thing. Like it's just that's the simplest way to put it. And it's the thing that people will spend their entire lives avoiding. And that's what's so at a meta level, that's what's scary to me. So it's like, it's not that I'm fearless in kind of putting goo on my prickly friends, but it's that I look back from the end of my life and be like, oh, what if I spent, you know, years and years of my life hanging out with some people and not telling them what I really think? Like that, that to me is, is, it sounds horrible, right? So it's like, it's like allowing the greater pain <laughs> or the greater fear to kind of, get you to confront the the smaller ones and to be fair the, i mean to be clear the small ones are where you are at it's the scariest thing to do but uh you know in in moments of clarity like uh and i wouldn't say that i am walking around my life in a moment of clarity like this this ebbs and flows like i get it maybe <laughs> maybe once a month and and it's like all that is good in my life comes from like 
fleeting moments of clarity. Uh, there's a quote from somebody who said something like, a courageous person is not someone who's less scared than other people. He just kind of faces his fear for like five seconds longer. Right. So it's really like, wow, like those those five seconds of being willing to do something that scares you, uh, it will be this, you know, it might be asking someone out and then they end up being your spouse. Right. Like it's it life changing. And but at the same time, you know, it's I feel like there's there's danger in this. Right. Like because it's like in, inescapable danger. And I think that makes it difficult to talk about because, you know, nobody wants to be responsible for inciting someone else to doing something dangerous and then they get hurt and now it's your fault sort of right but at the same time if we and and so what the committee like the committee of society and your friends and everyone else your parents everyone else will tell you is play it safe dude like don't you know don't risk that much don't try that big because and it's understandable why they do that but the end result seems to be that lots of people are kind of bored listless kind of lost they feel like their their lives don't have any spark to it and so you know i I don't want to advocate that anybody kind of take super crazy risks and then you know like quit your job today and whatever like that's that can be unwise but i think just being aware that there is this spectrum of risk and danger and that life should probably be lived somewhere in the middle or you know you like you just you likely need to take more risk if you're feeling kind of like your life is inert right like like i and i remember what that felt like when i was like uh in my mid-20s i think i was very much trying to make my life as i don't know if kashi is the right word but like i Mm -hmm. i felt like i had a lot to lose like i i was working a a job that i didn't feel like i deserved because it was like uh you know I, i was I didn't have a have a university education. I didn't have. Uh, I, I felt like I was very lucky to have my job, and so yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't able to face the truth of my experience, which was that I was getting bored in my job, and I felt like I'm. I have all this, oblig. I, I felt this sense of obligation to my boss. And the funny thing is, you know, my boss and I are good friends now still, and uh, I think I've talked to him since, and he's like, you know, dude, like I, I never felt that way about you so it's like i was i was conjuring up that whole thing in my own head which i think a lot of people do a lot of people are kind of um you know trapped by their own assumptions and expectations of how people would react negatively to things i think there's a possibly a mark twain quote that's something like i've suffered a great deal in my life and uh some of which is from things that actually happened (laughs) right which is which is yeah so you know it's uh it's really wild to really think about because it's like we're all living in in hallucinations all the time, our own and other people's, and mm-hmm. to see the, the the clarity of it, yeah. Again, you have to like step away from everything, which is which is lonely, which is isolating, which is, uh, but it's also really interesting. I think that's the thing I want to kind of pitch to people. Like like yeah. it can be really interesting. So people worry that oh, if I turn off my phone, if I log off Twitter or whatever, like I'm gonna miss out on all the fun of what other people are doing. That's true, but. If every morning, the moment you wake up, you check Twitter first thing in the morning, then you are also missing out on like the interestingness from the inside of you. And I think people are afraid to believe that they they might have interestingness inside them, right? That they might have a vision or they might have 
some sense of how things should be. Like that's scary. Like it's, it goes back to the Steve Jobs thing about when you have the possibility of making your dreams become true, there's responsibility in that. It's the responsibility of of being the monarch of your own life. That's why I, I, like people sometimes ask me like, why do you have a, a crown on your head in Twitter? Like, do you think of yourself mm-hmm. as, it's not about being a king of, king of other people. It's about being the king of yourself. It's that you are the monarch of your domain, of your life. And you have that authority over yourself and you have to win over the people which is yourself like your various you know your passions and your fears and your everything like you have to hold court and you have to inspire yourself with your own leadership and your own uh just your uh what are the words people use magnanimity right um exerting agency exactly exactly that so when when you demonstrate to yourself that you're capable of of leadership over yourself and being a, a good you know a good father a good king a good brother just a good friend to yourself and you kind of support yourself challenge yourself right uh but mm-hmm. don't, don't push yourself too hard to take crazy risks but kind of you know like right. a good like a good coach like come on you can do it better you can do it you can go a bit faster okay take a break now you know that kind of vibe you do yeah. that and then life transforms it becomes you know it, it it's it's hard and painful for a while but once you've experienced that that progress um, you you'll get this glow about you, I think, and like you'll release muscular tension from your face, from your gut, from your shoulders, and people can see it. People can see that oh, that there's a person who's like self-governed, you know, and and not in a vindictive or cruel way. They are not a tyrant over themselves. They are more like a Pericles, right? They are they are inspiring, right. and they they honor their ancestors. They they are. Uh, uh, an example unto others, and not and not not an example unto others, like in a showmanship kind of way. They're not showing off. They're just, they're just being the best versions of themselves. And then when mm-hmm. you do that, it's like you you bring out that that quality in other people around you. And oh, that's so beautiful. It's so beautiful when, you know, you, you do something for yourself and it gives other people the courage and permission to do the same. And then we can assemble all these people in a crew and then, ah, beautiful. Um, so you were talking about how you might seem like e- egotistical or narcissistic to other people. But mm-hmm. the way I think of this is sort of like when you're not attached to mm-hmm. the expectations of others, when you're not dancing the dance everybody else wants you to dance, mm-hmm. then you seem like very um, like you have a very strong self or, or very egotistical, like you're exerting yourself. Mm-hmm. But this is just what agency looks like. This is what decision making yeah. looks like. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you tweeted recently about how a guy DM'd you or something saying that all of your tweets are about them. <laughs> yeah. And I think that this, this is kind of true, actually. Like when you're telling me <laughs> that I need to like gather the courage right. to go out and do the most difficult thing. I know you're referring to like people, but it's, yeah. it sounds like I'm like, oh man, you're like really <laughs> talking about me right now. Yeah. So, um, so can you speak a little bit more to to that about like how you took this thing that that seems like a big leap, this big leap that was maybe, you know, done in these five second increments of decision making, like how do you gather the courage to take big risks? And um, if somebody feels like they're in this area of stagnation, what can they do in order to make big strides two, three, four years from now? Right. Um, so I think that for me, where like the the heart of my courage comes from is 
is from like again it's from the ancestors and, and what i mean by that is like artists and musicians and authors mm-hmm. throughout history you know there was there were people composing symphonies in concentration camps in in nazi germany and right. like just that knowledge like I, I feel a deep affinity to anybody who's ever done any creative work as a gift to the species like I, mm-hmm. I sometimes describe it as as the light of human consciousness, right? Like somebody, you know, whoever wrote the Odyssey and whoever wrote the Mahabharata or the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, right? They were people who who sat down with their limited lives, right? In limited meaning, um, you know, we're mortal, right? With their with their limited days on this earth, and they thought, what I want to do is spend my time and energy assembling utterances, assembling symbols, putting together art to move and inspire other people, you know, to comfort them in their times of, of woe and anxiety and grief and to encourage them, like really like strengthen them and give them resolve and, and give them things to dream about, something to a future to look forward to. And I think of these people as my family. I think of these people as my kin. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, they, they kept me going through, you know, even music, even just anything, anything that isn't strictly necessary, right? And this is, this is where my my relationship with like utilitarianism is kind of different from other people's but like um mm-hmm. it's just yeah this sense of of you know there's this there's this video game starcraft 2 and there's like this uh cinematic that was like the trailer for one of the games uh, legacy of the yeah. void it's complete fiction right it's just a bunch of it's a it's a fictional story about an alien race in a different galaxy but mm-hmm. there's this story of of brotherhood and sacrifice and um you know, like just the Protoss kind of like protecting each other and one of them like sacrifices himself so that the others can live. And, mm-hmm. you know, I cry when I watch that that trailer. And even though it's fictional characters, I know that, and even though I know that the people who put it together, they were doing their jobs, right? They were going to work and they would have been arguing with their colleagues and their manager told them to do this and change that and change whatever. But like ultimately, the thing that came out of it, I can I can feel the love that was put into it, you know. And maybe maybe I'm hallucinating, right. but like this is the hallucination that I choose for myself, right? That <laughs> you know, in in and there's so many other examples. It's, it's never any just any one example, right? It's just there's this this universal pursuit, and you there are street musicians in every city on the planet. And one when I went being dramatic, I'm like, as long as there's still one. As long as there's one street musician somewhere on the planet who's playing music for the joy of others, like I'm on that guy's team, you know, like that's who I'm fighting for and that's who I'm I'm kins with. And mm-hmm. when you know, so it's like this there are these jokes that's like uh people say things like, let's say I'm I'm at a I, I'm at McDonald's or something and they gave me the wrong order. Like I'm too nervous and shy to kind of ask them to fix it. But like if someone fucks up my friend's order, then I suddenly, I'm going to stand up straight and be like, excuse me, you just messed up my friend's <laughs> order. And yeah, so I, I think yeah. there, there's something powerful in that. And I think it's like advocating for yourself can be a difficult thing to do, but advocating for others is is easier. And so there is, there is value in kind of assembling into these loose networks of or crews of people who are looking out for each other. Mm. And yeah, so you know, I I often think about how when I was a kid, I had nobody like either of us to talk to. You know, like my family members and my the, the social environment that I was in, like early 90s Singapore. It's just very, oh, you got to go and get a job, you got to make money, you got to climb the ladder and like I didn't want any of that. You know, I wanted to be a street musician. And <laughs> Um, so I think about that kid who did nothing wrong. He was just a kid, right? And how he yeah. did not receive um, support from anybody else in real life until he was like 20, 22. 
And mm-hmm. I, everything I do is for that kid. You know, it's like, I, I don't know if I, I you know, like, like uh, I can have doubts about whether I right now deserve, you know, mercy and grace and, and all the things that we do deserve right, as human beings. But like, when I look at the yeah. kid, I'm like, that kid was, did nothing wrong. He's a child. He doesn't know anything. And I can find myself, I can feel the courage that's stirring in myself to look out for that kid, right? And to to post <laughs> tweets for that kid in a sense. Because I, I do get DMs from, from younger people who are like, huh, I hadn't considered that that's possible. You know, I hadn't. And like every time I get one of those DMs from one of those kids, it like completely resets my clock and my self-doubt and everything else. It's like, oh, you know, as long as this one person feels less alone, they feel less depressed, they feel less alienated and anxious, like that's, that's who mm-hmm. it's for. And yeah, so for someone who's kind of looking for courage, I would say that um, I, I would, I would, it will be nice to have people in your life in, around you who support you. And I, I wish that for everyone. But uh, the really powerful thing is to look for like a personal history. There's a quote from Emerson where he says, um, assemble all the writing that has been to you like the blast of a trumpet. You know, like assemble your own mm. Bible. And and the cool thing about, you know, like past utterances that are like a, a like a blast of a trumpet to you is that they can't betray you like in the you know you know they, they can't let you down the way like a, a human friend might and so you can you can assemble these you know I, one of my talking points is that a talisman is just an object that is meaningful to you you know and so like a wedding mm-hmm. ring is the universally understood talisman right like you you you, you have a wedding ceremony right. with a priest and all your communities around your friends are happy for you and it's just you charge that wedding ring with the the energy of that ceremony and and so everyone understands what a what a wedding ring is and right. the the thing that i'm trying to teach people is that everybody can create any kind of ceremony at any time and imbue any object with any meaning but you have to be intentional about it so you can you can you know after listening to this podcast or whatever pick a completely <laughs> arbitrary object if you like i mean so ideally it should be something that you know kind of resonates with you in some way but you can pick you know uh, an ashtray or whatever. <laughs> Ellen Watts yeah. talks about this. And you can decide that this object is going to be meaningful to you because this is the story that you're going to tell yourself about this particular object. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I have I have a, a, a necklace that I bought from in, in San Francisco when I was visiting. And I, 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 I was wandering around the flea market and like most of it looked like kind of trinkets for tourists but there was this one guy who you know i made eye contact with him and we just had a connection we just i just felt like he he saw me in that moment and i saw him and i'm like mm-hmm. like hey let, let, uh what's what's this about what's the story here which i would not have felt comfortable asking like the other or the other people selling trinkets but i i felt like right. he had a story and he did and it turns out that he was traveling through like Morocco and Tunisia and he was inspired by all the architecture and stuff and so he spent many years of his life kind of studying that art form and that that those you know the metal work there and mm-hmm. so I you know I had to buy some of his his stuff to to bring with me and we spent like an hour talking about creativity and and novels and and art and like I felt like oh you know he is one of me right you know like just as how I talk about the ancestors like here's a here's a peer I'm never gonna speak to him again I don't know what I don't know his name or anything but like mm-hmm. I carry his his necklace with me as a as a talisman and I wear it when I am you know um, meeting when I'm when I'm doing sometimes when I'm doing Zoom calls that are, I feel are important or like just any, anything that I feel I want to kind of um, have that that courage with me I each time I wear it with intent 
and I kind of I touch it a little bit and I think about it. it it's like a, it's like a, I say a little prayer sort of. And I mean that's what rosaries are as well. If you think about it, it's like you know it's 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 not it's not any one particular religion, but this necklace has been charged with in meaning and intention. And so if if for some reason I'm having a bad day. And I, I, I could literally like take a shower and sit down and wear the necklace and nothing else and like reflect on that for like 10 minutes and I will feel the strength of, you know, my fellow travelers, my author. And it's, it's, all, it's all hallucinated in a sense, right? It's all made up, but so is everything else. So we can be intentional about it and it can, it can give us strength. You know, it's like narrative. It's like a narrative battery, right? You can charge it with, with meaningful stories and then you can kind of extract charge from it when you need it. Right. And this this all gets back to memory, right? Yes. So you're you're talking about uh Nick Camarada says <laughs> that we all deserve newborn love. Yeah. And uh you're you're talking about Emerson's um compiling your own Bible. Mm -hmm. Um but th this is all like a way of paying respect to mm. the meaningful me memories that that you've created. Yes. Uh and as we're paying respect to the memories we've created, we are in a way creating meaning in yes. the moment for our possibility frontier, right? Yes. Of, of meaningful actions in the future. Because yes. if, if we think that we haven't lived meaningful lives or if we can't remember anything important, then what does it matter what our next step is? Yeah. Right. And and so this this all gets back to what you were talking about earlier, which is about courage mm -hmm. and um and, and creating and creativity and um kind of doing something generous for the world and for yourself. Um mm -hmm. so I want to bring it back to Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that seems kind of weird, but um so bringing it back to accessibility, you mentioned um McDonald's. Uh, which which is not Twitter, but we can kind of think about like McDonald's kind of in that way. So what yeah. can we learn from fast food chains about leveraging accessibility while avoiding mediocrity? Uh, so, so before I get to this, so just, um, it, I don't think it's weird at all that, that we bring this back to Twitter because, I mean, mm -hmm. so the way I think about Twitter is that it is, you know, so like someone tweeted at me recently something like um, if you told me several years ago that I would be spending time and energy trying to get better at Twitter I would have laughed at you uh, and mm -hmm. I, I was thinking that's true if you're thinking about it as I'm trying to get better at some you know corporate app on my phone but if you think about <laughs> yeah. it as if you think right. about it as I'm trying to get better at interfacing my thoughts with other people's thoughts across the planet in real time yeah. like that is right. you know that is scholarship you know it is it is uh, friendship it's meaning it's it's that's the opportunity and the thing about if if you look historically right um people do tend to kind of um we over venerate certain um uh, artists from the past and we make it seem like they didn't have everyday concerns like they also had bills to pay you know like da vinci has like a, a resume that he sent uh like the i think the prince of something about being an engineer and it's like you know people have always had to eat <laughs> people have always had to pay bills and yeah. so there's always been that annoying i mean i don't even know if it's that annoying you know it's like it's something that we can kind of poke at like oh there are ads in this in this thing that we're watching but like, yeah, you know, even Dickens and whoever else when they were writing, they had to deal with that. And so, so bring, to bring it to McDonald's and fast food, um, 
I do eat quite a lot of McDonald's actually. <laughs> I think my two the, the the two corporations that have made the most money from me in lifetime revenue are Apple and McDonald's. And Apple mm. is like more recent because I you know I bought my first MacBook in like twenty. 14 or 15 or something but since then it's been like macbook for me macbook for my wife iphone iphone ipad ipad apple watch for my yeah. wife like that adds up really fast so i see why they are the, the the most valuable company in the planet whereas mcdonald's i have been eating since i was a child and like um <laughs> i wouldn't say i'm like obsessed with it it's like but usually i, I tend to have roughly a meal a, a, a week or something and part of it is, you know, there's, there's a McDonald's just down the street from my place and it's open until really late at night. Sometimes it used to be 24 hours and now I think since COVID, it's like not 24 hours anymore. But it used to be that if I wanted to, you know, have a meal at 3 a.m., which I often, I'm often, I sometimes wake up at 2 a.m. to write something because it's on my mind. And then after I write, I'm hungry and then I go eat. And, um, you know, I do, I think people sometimes have really negative associations with McDonald's because they think of it as, oh, it's so corporate. It's it's the clown and it's 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 tiling out food um, from like local food. It's so it's so global and corporate and, yeah. and sterile and all those things, which is true. You know, I'm not gonna deny that, but uh, you know, I I think people like to have. Um, visible enemies that they can shake their fist at because if you're mm-hmm. ish, very often if you're and you know most recently i saw a version of this on twitter which is like uh some i think she's filipino some some lady she was angry or upset with with a white lady for making a cookbook about dumplings and noodles and you know and I, i'm a singaporean asian and there's a, uh, we, could, we could have a whole separate podcast about this but like you know, the problem is like what's the problem, right? What's the when when somebody's trying to express like let let's let's assume good faith and assume that, you know, she's not a grifter, which some people assume she is, which is but I guess I'll take the other side. I'll assume that she she's not trying to be a bad person. Like in her in her story, she's not the villain, right? In her story, she's a good person trying to do a good thing. Like so what right. is she trying to do? She she feels that there's this issue, which is that um, you know, people from ethnic cultures so like uh in the case of let's say chinese food you might feel that chinese americans for example are not getting sufficient credit and sufficient um kind of uh uh compensation for their work right and and so here's someone else getting credit instead but what happens what happens when you complain about the person who's getting credit instead is you just send more attention their way you know, and this is why my Twitter bio, my Twitter bio is focus on what you want to focus your time and energy on what you want to see more of. So if you right. feel that the injustice is that you know some minorities are not receiving adequate representation and and um, compensation, then you should be spending your time and energy um, celebrating and supporting minority creators, right? Similarly, like if your issue with McDonald's is that it's not healthy, then you should be focusing your time and energy, you know, eating healthy, clean food, posting about that, sharing that, and give people something interesting and exciting and compelling to kind of opt into. But that's scary, right? That's that that takes, you know, it's it's vulnerable. It's um, it's always easier to point at something that you think is bad and wrong and like try to get 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 people to, to agree with you that something is bad and wrong but like then what like you know what's the next step how much you know like for all that that there's like two or three days on twitter where that was like the main character going on and the main character mm-hmm. sold more books because of it you know and and you know sure, i i like i'm i'm i have no issue with her getting that but like the 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 problem of 
uh, minority people, creatives, cooks, chefs, whatever, not getting more um, compensation or credit, that was not addressed at all. Like, <laughs> as far as I can right. tell, maybe maybe like 1% or, or 2 two or 3%. And, you know, if, if, if you zoom out and see the big picture, like, I think I had this flash of, of frustration in about 2016. Uh, I remember one specific thing I remember was uh, like there was a whole like Time magazine put Donald Trump on the cover and it's like they positioned his head such that the M of the Time magazine looks like devil's mm-hmm. horns on top of his head. And people yeah. were arguing about that as if it meant as if it would have any consequence. But like, you know, <laughs> right. like five five years later, we can both be like, so did that have any consequence? No, but right. people spent the entire day on it. Like why? Like and we're and, still talking and, about it. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then you know uh, yeah, in, in, I'm in my defense, I'm using this as a as a cautionary tale. <laughs> the the hope is that you the, the listener realizes that this is a cautionary tale and and stop yourself from arguing about the devil's horns on future magazine covers for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, like yeah. 99 percent of the time. Like so maybe maybe you can have a little pointless argument as a treat. But it should not get in the way of you doing the work that, in your opinion, is about living fucking gloriously, right? So if you ask me to imagine what's a fucking glorious meal, I would not say McDonald's. Mm. You know, I would say I, I remember having a steak with my friend Amjad when I was visiting San Fran and having mm. you know, this, all the meals that I've shared with my friends. And so if I feel troubled by having eaten mcdonald's three days in a row then the next thing for me to do is to to counteract that with uh you know by taking action and be like okay i want to invite a friend over and let's cook dinner together and let's have a nice meal right like that's that's the that's the pushback that i can do um you know some people might have a deeper understanding of maybe you know mcdonald's might have like uh i don't know they have that much corporate power they might be influencing uh you know, I, I agriculture and stuff like I, I believe they must be one of the largest buyers of of meat in the world, and so they would have political mm-hmm. influence and stuff. But realistically, I don't think I am gonna impact that. So you really have to choose your your battles, right? Because if you're gonna kind of wave your hands in frustration at each news event, like today it's McDonald's, tomorrow it's I don't know Heckler and Koch. I'm just pulling stuff out my yeah. ass. Like the next day it's Boeing. The next day it's like. Then, then you you spread like a mile wide and an inch thick, right? And then the at the end of your life, it's like, oh, I I expressed outrage at the news like six out of seven days a week for ten years. Like, why? You know, what did that accomplish, right? So you got to think about what you want to accomplish, and you know, I, I would say think about things that last. So introducing people to each other, helping people make friends with each other, that's a thing that can last lifetimes, you know. So that's beautiful. That's always worth doing, and mm-hmm. yeah. So that that's what people should be thinking about and strategizing in their solitude. I do think that if you're not careful, you can start beating yourself up about not being perfect about this. But that's like, that's also, you know, like you have to, you have to cultivate a sense of humor. You have to realize that the playing field is kind of rigged and it is kind of tilted. Mm-hmm. So you are always, you know, it's going to catch you off guard. Something's going to be annoying on Twitter and you're going to do a response to it. Like, but yeah, once, once you've caught yourself doing it, you'll be like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I, sh- I should be focusing my time and energy on what I want to see more of. And then you you kind of go back to that. It's shockingly hard, actually, to stop yourself in that like passionate moment of being like, oh, I have something to say about this. And then you look at it and you go, oh, actually, like, I don't want to increase the volume on this. You, it, it requires a lot of presence. Um, yeah. And and this kind of uh, gets back to, I think, uh, you briefly mentioned 
the book you're writing, I believe you're referring to introspection. Yes. Can you uh, talk a little bit about what you're, you're working on in that book and what you're trying to communicate as you work through that book? Right. So um, the book has, I think, two origin stories. One is that I wanted to, it started with me wanting to solve boredom for myself. Like, uh, so boredom feels like a, like a ridiculous problem to have because the world, there's so much going on in the world and there's so much to do. And I wanted mm -hmm. to understand what boredom is. And I came up, you know, I did a bunch of reading and I came up with like a four, four part explanation. So boredom is what happens when you have a, when you're tired, you have a tired mind and you're in a cluttered space. Um, with something else and unclear utility values. Oh my God, I'm forgetting the third one. Oh, and you, and, you, and you have high standards. So you're tired, you're in a cluttered space, you have, you have like perfectionist high standards and you don't really know what you want. And mm. so that, that's, that's like the perfect cocktail for boredom. If you have all four of those things, like you're fucked, your, your day is ruined, you can't do anything, right? And right. so, but we, we've solved three out of four of those problems. Like the solutions to three out of those four things are pretty clear. If you're tired, you should rest, you know, take a nap, go, right. go to the hills, whatever, straightforward. Um, if you have clutter in your space, you should declutter. And although that, that, there's, there's like a, a profundity to that that I'm, I'll get into later. But like, yeah, mm -hmm. if you have clutter, you should declutter, get rid of shit that you're not interested in. And uh, the third thing was, if you're a perfectionist, you should lower your standards and be willing to ship things that are imperfect. Be willing to watch a movie that's like you're not obsessed about. That like, you know, you're like, ah, just watch a movie. You know, just, just Instead of spending half an hour trying to choose a show and then your, your half an hour is gone and then you don't have time to watch a show. It's better to just kind of quickly pick. But... The last thing is um, unclear utility values, which is you don't know what you value. You don't know what's important to you. You don't know what's, what you care about. And in a way, that's the bigger problem that affects all the other problems. Because if you don't know what you, what you care about, then like, what's the point of resting anyway? Like you're tired, sure. But like, what are you going to do once you're well-rested? Like you might as well just scroll Twitter some more. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Right? Like I have all this clutter around me. I should get rid of some of it. But like, you know, what if I need it? I don't know if I need it. I don't know what I need. I don't know what I want. You know? So that doesn't, mm. right? And then like the perfectionism as well. It's like, if I ship something that's imperfect, I'm going to receive some blowback for it. And I'm going to be exposed to my incompetence or imperfection or whatever. And like, uh, you know, what if I watch it and I don't like it? Like, it's just, again, it's like all the, the first three problems are all kind of downstream of the last problem, which is not being clear about what you want. So I wanted mm. to write a book to explore and find out, well, how do you figure out what you want? And so that's that's one origin story. The other origin story is that I do get DMs from people fairly often uh, that are kind of in this space. Like they're kind of like, hey, Visa, you seem confident. You seem like you're happy. You know, how, how do I get the same way? Right? Like how do I also be, you know, having a passionate life? And then we, we have a back and forth. We, we, I ask them questions and they give me answers. And I, I find out almost always the answers to these questions, they, there's like some catastrophizing. They kind of, they kind of there's, there's always some, it's like, I guess it's kind of like therapy. Like you, you get them to lay out their reasoning and their thinking and their beliefs. And you'll find that there are certain beliefs that are correct. And then there are certain beliefs that are kind of shaky and like built on faulty assumptions. And then, but investigating that is kind of difficult, but you guide them through it. And then they, they get moments of insight and they feel clarity. And I'm like, oh, I've reliably done this in conversation for like, probably like a hundred people by now. And I'm like, okay, wow. this has been reliably useful to other people. And I would like to condense it into a book so that I can share it with right. a thousand people instead. But it's hot. <laughs> and yeah. a funny, a funny thing is, um, so I've been circling around, you know, I've been reconceptualizing the book over and over again. And like my most, so I've had several stumbling blocks with the book. One is that 
the process of guiding someone through this, I can do it in real time in conversation, but doing it in a book is a bit harder because I can't get feedback from the person in real time. Mm, and yeah. so if you're not careful about how you do it, if you ask people the wrong question or you kind of guide them in the wrong way, you might end up hurting some people more than you help them. You know, so it's like some people might read the whole thing and not give a shit about it. And that's actually fine. I don't really, I don't really mind. Like everybody kind of wastes some time anyway. But the mm. scary thing that I try to avoid is I don't want to lead anyone into their pain and then fail to lead them out because that's like, like right. I just made their life worse. The second yeah. thing, which is, a, which is another version of the same thing, which is that um, what if I am not careful and I end up kind of encouraging them to to introspect indefinitely, right? Like to be kind of like, oh, I, I should, I should, you know, like learn more about my childhood. Oh, I should learn more about my my past. I, I, I don't know, but like you know, like the the primary failure mode of introspection is you end up just kind of looking at yourself all day and you never do anything. And like, so that's another yeah. another thing that if someone said, oh, you know, I've been reading Visa's book Introspect, and now I have ordered like ten other books, and I'm gonna keep reading books and <laughs> never do anything in my life except read more books about introspection. Like that's another outcome I want to avoid. And uh, so I, I think I've addressed both of those two things. And the most recent thing that kind of uh, clarified for me, clicked for me, was that actually it seems that, um, you know, so children don't have this problem. Like a five-year-old won't come up to you and be like, I don't know what I want, you know? Like, uh, like what should I do with my life Like as a five-year-old, right? Like, like yeah. five-year-olds don't give a shit. They're just, just going about their day. They're, they're self-directed internally. And it seems plausible to me that, um, the reason people struggle with this is with with like you know what 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 am I what am I about what am I for all these things is that we internalize um, coercive structures and, and not not necessarily in a I'm not saying that coercion is universally bad but like we do internalize coercive structures from society and from parents from teachers from peers even and that creates like dissonance and a disconnect between someone's internal. Uh, desires and their internal drives and like their mental model of what they think is good socially and like what is oh, and they won't think this is what i think is good socially it it, it, it gets saved right. in your head as this is what i think is good or what i think i think is good right and then there's that conflict there and so it's like people are slamming the accelerator and the brakes at the same time and they're not going anywhere fast and they are wearing themselves out trying to help people with this i'm realizing that you know so to some degree like it could be that the whole book is actually not the right frame and that rather than introspection what people need to do is confront and unlearn their, their the coercion that they've been through which is a section in the book but like you get a sense of how i'm kind of like like reevaluating and restructuring the book over and over again like no 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 wait like i shouldn't maybe i shouldn't angle it this way maybe i should angle it that way right like i want to make sure that people kind of have the right entry point and the right frames to confront themselves in a in a in a healthy way that isn't you know that it's it's kind of dangerous stuff so it's like it needs a lot of caveats and it needs a lot of uh just to be clear you know be careful about this but you know yeah that kind of thing i see it as kind of like an alignment problem um what i tell people when they complain to me is and then a lot of people don't like hearing this but i'm like you want too many things yeah so many times the problem is that um, like I, I can use dating as an example. If yeah. you want someone that fills like 10 different check boxes and lives next door, <laughs> you're not going to yeah. find them. Like you have to give somewhere. And yeah. I think in people do this with their lives that they want too many things. It's like, I want a great job 
that does X, Y, and Z for me, and I, I want getting it to be easy. Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting that I'm thinking about now. It's that in a way, allowing checkboxes to dictate your life. It's there's some parallels between that and design by committee. You know, right. it's like it's like you're, the the reason people want many many things is because they don't have the courage and conviction to identify what is the one thing that they want most. Because if you know what you really really want most, you can kind of use that as the the guiding um, signal, and then everything yeah. else can. Which isn't to say that you know like. I want, uh, you know, so in my case, uh, if you ask me to pick the word for the one thing, it'd probably be kinship, which is like that with, with the ancestors and with the others. It's like that, that, that vibe, right? Like that's the vibe I'm looking for. Yeah. And when I do that, you know, it's like I might sometimes receive someone who also claims to be in, in, in uh, accordance with that vibe, but it turns out that they're also kind of mean-spirited and cruel at the same time. And I'm like, okay, we... we we can interface, but we can't really be like close friends. You know, it's like un- until you kind of learn to unlearn that, or maybe not at all. You know, maybe we're just not a good fit. But uh, you know, mm. I I wouldn't. I don't need to make check boxes for that because it's like it's just kind of self evident, right? So it's uh, there is there is this this dichotomy between like checkbox thinking, which again it can can be useful, right? It's a useful right. like a like a servant. I think checkbox thinking is a useful servant and it's a horrible master, right? It's a kind of utilitarian, uh, analytical sort of perspective. And it, if you're not careful, so some people are very careful. So like I, I know some of our mutuals on Twitter, for example, like they are, you know, they have the kind, the kind of analytical perspective and they also have that self-aware about the limitations of, of that process, right? Like it, it, it is just a process. It's not... It's a map. It's not the territory itself. So right. you can use it to guide your decisions, but it can't. It can't replace your central core intuition, your central core desire and, and vibe. And like people can people can sense when when you're if you are dating someone with a checklist in mind, like they can feel it and they're not going to enjoy it. You know. Yeah, and that that gets back to being present and not being attached to all of these expectations, right? It's um. Yeah it's this this thing you're talking about about like you're stepping on the gas while while you're stepping on the brake yeah. and you're just spending all this energy fruitlessly but it's kind of like yeah being pulled in all of these directions mm. so in introspection you are trying to get clear or help people get aligned on what is important to them in service of taking meaningful action right and so you were talking a little bit about the difficulties in writing this book, um, but what do you find is useful or what do you think are uh, the main things that people need to do differently in order to create meaningful action? Oh, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of useful things in the book. Um one that jumps out at me is a phrase. I, I can't remember when I came up with this phrase, but I describe it as, as the propaganda department of the mind. And... Mm-hmm. And so at several points, I think that I, there's another section where I talk about the idea of being an authoritarian tyrant over oneself. And they are both related, right? Like, uh, so when people uh, have have a nasty inner life, like they just, you know, their relationship with themselves is really fraught and unpleasant and strained. Um, you know, their self-talk is abusive. Like there, there are people like this. And uh, I've even seen, 
so recently I was talking with a friend and she has made progress on on the way like I mean independent of me right so on her own doing her own work she used to post like Facebook statuses that were pretty distressing to read because she was just being so cruel to herself for yeah. over like small things and like at, at the time I didn't feel like we were close enough to intervene but I, I think I, I tried to leave like little breadcrumbs I was like hey you don't have to be this hard on yourself you know stuff, stuff like that but right. uh, you know we, we weren't like close enough that I could really kind of uh, have like a deep intervention but um, yeah I found a few things like that useful which is that getting people to even consider that the way they speak with themselves again because people don't even a lot of people don't even realize that or con- conceive of this as i'm speaking to myself this way like they just experience mm-hmm. yeah. it as as the this the water that they're swimming in right like it's just they don't think to question it it doesn't it doesn't arise to them that they could speak to themselves differently so that's a, that's a thing that's helpful another thing that's helpful is getting people to con- just contemplate having a sense of humor <laughs> like uh you yeah. know it's and it's and so i i have this whole thing about about comedy as something sacred like a and it, it's it's this idea and again it's, it, it all kind of feeds back to the authoritarian dictator um metaphor mm-hmm. it's interesting because again like authoritarians like they hate comedians and they will lock them up or like put them out <laughs> of whatever because yeah. what the comedian does is they puncture the solemnity of the authority of the figure right like a real legitimate authority who guides from a place of of like uh, courage and love and all of those things uh, he will not be threatened by humor you know like you make fun of him he'll laugh with you like right? he gets he gets that you know there is something kind of silly and absurd that there needs to be some guy guiding the decisions, right? But if mm-hmm. it's an insecure tyrant, like they will be devastated at being made fun of and they will seek to kind of uh, shut it down because once people are laughing at the authority, the authority becomes le- illegitimate. And so, you know, it's almost like I'm inviting people to consider, like if you laughed at yourself, how does that feel? You know, like, do you feel like, does, the, does that part of you that's like, ha I'm I'm such a, like, you know, can, can you be laughing at yourself in a way that, it's not self-deprecating, but mm-hmm. is again. So when you're self-deprecating, it's the authoritarian, and I, and I mean it when I mean again. There's this nuance here because there are ways in which self-deprecation can be nourishing and wholesome. Usually, I think for people who are like very high status, so like uh, you know, like when when you see Jennifer Lawrence in a in a interview, kind of making fun of herself, she's doing it in a very skillful way to keep people from pedestalizing her because she's an Oscar winner and stuff. Right. But like, if it's just some guy and it's like, ah, you know, I'm forever alone. I'm I'm never gonna get a date. Like, stop. Right. You know, that's not like you have to you have to be mindful of like your position of power relative to yourself and relative to your peers. And and if if you're being mean to yourself and calling that self-deprecation, that's like the authoritarian voice, um, suppressing you and pushing you down and and you know giving you the illusion of of security by imprisoning you basically, right? And so I'm trying to get people to. And again, I don't, I don't want to be like some kind of guru figure who's like too certain of himself and like insisting that this is what people's internal lives are like. It may or may right. not fit, you know. So I got, I got to be. I myself have to be kind of playful about it. I have to be like playful in my delivery so that people don't then think, oh, everything I'm doing is wrong and everything Visa is saying is right. Therefore, I should follow Visa. Like, no, that's that's the same problem, <laughs> you know. It's like you got to be cheeky about it. You got to be mischievous about it and like encourage people to to develop that. 
there is a relationship somewhere between like autonomy and and humor and not taking yourself too seriously it's kind of like for for me it's about playfulness is open and mm. creative whereas this self-deprecation thing it's it's closed and defensive right it's it's kind yeah. of like oh i'm attacking myself in expectation of some attack so i'm, I'm yeah. kind of doing it so that you don't have to do it for me yes um as a signal that oh i already know how x y and z i am yeah um so it's it's protective but when people are doing this um closed off guarded thing they're not inviting others to play with them yes. whereas um like once at work i made like an offhanded comment about how something i do like i'm just not so great at something but i did it in a playful way and it was kind of like it broke tension because yeah. it's like nobody wanted to say yeah, you know yeah so everybody thought it was hilarious that i already knew that there was just this this thing at work that i'm not that great at right but it's inviting that you know um this open camaraderie almost. Whereas yeah. if I'm sitting there beating myself up, it's yeah. um it's it's not inviting anyone to really join in in a fun way. It's really pushing right. people away. Yeah, I had a I had a manager at my last company, his name is Dave, and he had I, I would describe him as he kind of has like Dwayne Johnson energy, like the rock. Like he's just he's just a muscular guy and he's kind of charismatic and you know he like puts his hands together and stuff. And he had this really skillful way of saying self-deprecating things but you could see in his face and his body language that he he has self-esteem and he's confident like he's like oh i'm a total idiot and i don't really understand what's happening here so could you explain that to me again like i the, the way he would say it it's, it was very inviting it would invite people to let their guard down and and be honest with him and and stuff like that it's very skillful i i i still reflect on that sometimes like this so there's so much nuance here right about it's not as simple as, oh, you should never, ever, ever self-deprecate. Like that becomes stiff as well. And so it's like you have to, you have to kind of reflect and review and, and it can be a lot of work. But even, you know, so it's like you, you have to try and have some levity throughout the whole thing. So I wanted to get into some questions from our readers, uh, yes. mostly about like Twitter and accessibility. Uh, Johnny, who's been on the show before at Generativist asks, Discoverability and accessibility makes more collaboration possible, but how can this best be scaled while maintaining a human or what you might call friendly approach? Because it seems that as we're maximizing any part of like this uh, fan, this friendly, ambitious nerd, that if we're maximizing like the ambition, then maybe the friendliness or um, the pursuit of knowledge might get less energy or attention. So I guess I'm talking about how are we improving the scale of becoming more accessible and discoverable while still being human and being inundated um, by all this communication and connection. So let's just say you have a movement of some kind and there's a leader of that movement. It's kind of inevitable that the leader, of, as the movement grows, the leader will become the number of demands that people have of the leader's time and energy will increase to the point where it it goes past the threshold of that person's uh, bandwidth, right? Mm -hmm. There's only so many people you can talk to in a day. There's only so many things you can respond to and so on. And so they end up needing to develop some kind of uh, like a gated system. Like you, you can't just walk up to Tim Cook or, or whoever and like get their attention. Like their attention is 
precious and so they they have all these this Byzantine labyrinth you have to go through to get their attention and I think that's kind of that's kind of um, unavoidable like if you're growing any kind of uh, just anything that you're trying to grow with a lot of people and a lot of that involves a lot of communication like eventually it becomes difficult for the the leader of or the person at the heart of the movement to to talk to everyone mm-hmm. but um you know i would say with the thing that i'm trying to do uh i'm not that important like it's it's i'm trying to do something that's like a decentralized ish network of networks and so ideally there should be like a dozen at, at this current stage of development there should be like dozens of other people that you can talk to who are not as inundated as me but can mm. you know and and they represent their own versions of these ideals so it's not like i'm trying right. to re-clone myself and have like you know like um like knockoff visas in other people like you know i have friends uh you know brooke is wonderful in her own way uh sylvia right. is wonderful in her own way like each 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 person kind of in my in my network I try to encourage them and and help them become excellent in their own regard, right? Like so, it's it's mm-hmm. it, I I don't need them to you know so called swear allegiance to me or whatever. It's like they're doing their own <laughs> thing. They are doing their own thing. I'm doing my own thing. Like I don't need them to be, you know, like like secondary to me or whatever. Like I I love that each of them should be a primary version of themselves. Each of them should be the. I think Kanye has a beautiful quote. He said like his his children are the fullest versions of themselves already like and like when he his favorite people are all people who are the maximum versions of themselves and we, which mm-hmm. in in our reference to our earlier conversation it's like the people who are not you know carrying the burden of uh what society wants of them or like you know that super ego stuff it's not their 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 brakes are off, right? Or like their the the way yeah. they navigate the accelerator and brakes is very very fluid. They're doing what they want. It's not it's they're they're not burdened by their hallucination of what they think other people want. Which doesn't mean that they are completely indifferent to other people, but like they have conversations with people and they don't they don't make assumptions and they don't uh, limit themselves unnecessarily. So yeah, um, the idea is that the network should be you know welcoming enough in general and that people who join this space and again it's like it's very nebulous right so it's not it's not like a commune on some um, offshore island or somewhere where you have to leave your your current life to participate no it's like it's just another tab in another window right it's just another another thing you can be attending to or or referencing while you're continuing with your your everyday life right Um, i once Mm. went through a list of things that are like warning signs that you might be in a cult and I try to do the opposite of every such thing. So like one thing is that cults try to cut you off from your friends and family so that they can kind of indoctrinate you more thoroughly. And I try to do the opposite of that. I encourage everyone to dive more deeply into your own social networks and, and be a good friend mm-hmm. to your own friends, right? Like that sort of thing. And yeah, so to kind of try to answer Johnny's question is like, you know, it, it, it boils down to like, what do we valorize? What do we celebrate? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, a thing I try to do every month is every month I do a tweet that's like, here's a list of accounts on Twitter that I think are great and they have less than a thousand followers. And I want right. everyone to get to know each other and follow each other and, and you know, value and appreciate each other. So it's, it's like, yeah, they will, they might mention at some point like, oh, we met because of Visa, but like, I'm not actually important. You know, it's like, it's like mm-hmm. maybe some of them they meet each other they start a band or they start a startup or you know they, they... it's like a landmark yeah exactly and as long as i continue to keep moving right which, which goes all the way back to the solitude thing uh if i keep moving 
it reduces the odds that like we will have something kind of static happening where and i've already kind of seen some small signs of this which makes me get a bit more kind of flighty and, and <laughs> want to leave uh-huh. which is that um you know again if if there is someone who's like a like a like a king basically and i know i know I, i'm kind of i'm kind of tempting this fate with the with the crown um picture but again that that as mm-hmm. i explained earlier that's for a different reason but it does you know these things do overlap like if people get too much of a sense that there is some so-called king in a certain part of a social group who is you know presiding over social relations and like his his approval is 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 everything and his disapproval is everything like i don't i don't want that and if i see people start to behave that way i want to discourage that and so i i may you know eventually if if that gets too much i may kind of like take a break from twitter and go post on tiktok or something you know like i just try mm-hmm. to like the it really isn't about me you know it's really it's it's about the the bigger picture thing and about the ancestors and about the people who haven't even showed up yet right like i'm always curious you know there's there's like a thousand of us ish like maybe a couple of hundred people in the in the closer circles and like a couple maybe a thousand people who are familiar but don't talk every day not so much and i'm so certain that there are hundreds of thousands more people who just don't know about this part of twitter yet and and maybe we shouldn't even be thinking about it in terms of twitter right it's just about networks of people encouraging and supporting each other to do their best work and and offer support and encouragement and yeah i i think you know we can just continue telling stories about such things we can continue sharing and celebrating the work that people do yeah i think in a lot of ways you're trying to be an example to others by your own actions but you also do this thing where sometimes you will explicitly tell people like i guess advice so mm-hmm. for instance you've written about having a a good reply game yes. and uh, i am philos on twitter wanted me to ask for you to expand on having a good reply game but my question is what does a good reply game do that a bad reply game fails to do Oh, this is beautiful. Oscar Wilde answered this question perfectly, which was he said that uh, a bore, b o o r, is someone who deprives you of solitude but does not provide you with company. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like yeah, so it's like a bad reply. A person shows up in your mentions and they say something which you know disrupts the silence, <laughs> but it doesn't add to what you were saying. It doesn't even relate really <laughs> to what you were saying. It's just it's just some noise and it's inconsiderate. Like again, I wouldn't say this about myself, but I would say it on someone else's behalf. Like how dare this random person, you know, sully that person's <laughs> mentions or replies with that horrible, you know, this thoughtless, inconsiderate reply? Because every you know, like I can get grandiose about this. Like every reply. Is an opportunity for connection, right? It's an opportunity for kinship and friendship. It's a, it's a, and you know, you know, if like, I don't, I don't think anyone should feel bad if their replies are less than perfect. Like everything's a work in progress. But sometimes you can tell, like the person never even meant to try, right? To, 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 to attempt a good reply. They were just, they just, they just saw an opportunity to be a dick and they just chose it. Yeah, it's like I, I see in my replies sometimes. I'll, I'll say something and somebody will just be like, I disagree. <laughs> or you're wrong. And I yeah. get frustrated at that. Like yeah. I don't I don't even interact with it because I know what it yeah. is. And I'll just mute the person. I'll be like, that's that's your yeah. one try. But it's so frustrating because I'm like, what you're not yeah. adding to the conversation. You're you're just kind of putting a vote into the space and that does nothing except like reject me to my face. <laughs> so yeah, that's so frustrating. Yeah. I remember my friend uh Priya, she once tweeted something very thoughtful. She was like, 
I, uh-huh. I think it was about some TV show or some something, and she was like, "Huh, I feel like I've seen, I have seen enough of this sort of thing, and I would like to see more of something else." Like, right? it's uh-huh. it's about her feelings, and it's about what she right. would like to see. And someone else replied, "Like, I disagree." X Y Z. I'm like, what? What you're disagreeing with her feelings? <laughs> like, what's what's going on? And it's, but you know, I I can you I can kind of simulate what that person was thinking. They didn't even. It's kind of sad when you see it. You realize that that person didn't even consider that. They, like when they read those words, they didn't read what the person said. Rather, yeah. they kind of they kind of looked past the feelings and they saw it as, oh, here's an argument and I'm going to argue against it, right? They didn't even read. Like, it's like they were they were scanning quickly and they saw an opportunity to insert themselves in a very ungracious, ugly way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, I know these are the same people who then, it's, it's sad because these are the same people who then, these people are not optimistic about life and society, right? Because if, yeah. from their experience, it's like every interaction they have with people is shitty. And so they would then, generalize from that and be like oh people are shitty because when i try to talk to them they are mean to me <laughs> but it's like mm-hmm. it's not people it's the way you're coming across right right this connects to the open versus um closed yes. approach and uh, because when people are coming from their map of the world yeah. and their map of other people and they see yeah. the beginning of a tweet and think somebody's making an argument that they already have a prepared response for, yes. then they're, they're like, they're like dead to the world. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, exactly. they're, yeah, yeah. They're not creating, they're not adding, they're not having a conversation. They're just saying it might be more words, but they're just saying, I disagree or, yeah. you know, me, me, me. And yeah. when we're, when we're open, uh, Anthony DeMello talks about this in, in such a beautiful way, but he talks mm. about how in order for me to actually love someone, right. I need to be completely open to who they are right now, which means yes. letting go of everything I expect them to be and everything that I think they were because of uh, my, my model of them in my mind. But exactly. I need to be here with them now. So... Tell yeah, tell me more about the interaction between like being closed versus open on Twitter, and uh, like how how can we turn this into kind of a model for other people to have more fun on Twitter, especially if they're if they're new users or if yeah. they're not used to the space. Uh, how can people better use the accessibility of Twitter in order to be more creative and, and productive and have more fun? Yeah, I love that you said dead to the world because I think that's really. Uh, I think Samuel Berger has this has this whole post about like a live players versus dead players in mm-hmm. in like uh, I think he's talking about politics, but like you know, like dead to the world is exactly is exactly it. You know, there are people who are live players or infinite players, and there are people who are finite. Like they've already made their mind up about what they think, and then they're mm-hmm. just kind of fighting to kind of hold the ground or hold the space that they think is correct and like so they will be correct all the time because they've chosen a domain in which they will be correct but like it's like mm. such a pyrrhic victory right because you 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 choose the the comfort of certainty over the discomfort of of like uncertainty and not knowing uh but okay mm. to answer your question you're asking about like how should new people kind of learn to have fun on twitter yeah i would say yeah. you know one way of approaching it is so there are a few things that i find uh compelling in people and that I follow people who do this and I try to do the same. One is to share stories of your personal experience. I think, uh, you know, so there's this great image from, uh, there's this guy called, pa- his name is literally Pascal something. And I, I have an f- image from him on one of my tweets where 
I say, every time we have a disagreement, I want to know what your experiences are that led you to this perspective, right? Because so there's, it's like this chart and it says that there's two people. One person has ex- life experience A, one second person has life experience B and life experience A leads to assumptions and beliefs A and life experience B leads to assumptions and experience B, right? And then mm. when there's an external event that happens of something else, let's call it C, right? C happens. And then, you know, person A has response A and person B has response B. And then when when they see each other have these different responses, they then argue about their responses, right? They're like, mm. oh, this is correct because this. And they're like, oh, no, this is wrong because that. And as long as you're operating at the level of the argument, uh, you may make some progress, but like the real juice and the real kind of value and and, and um, knowledge is actually locked up in people's experiences, which most people aren't super willing and ready to share because it's vulnerable stuff to share. What are your experiences that led you to believe what you believe, right? And right. being willing to share. So I would encourage people to start with like, you know, the experiences that aren't necessarily like super intimate. You don't have to start talking about like your family and your marriage and, and all of those things. But you could talk about, you know, what, I mean, it's up to you what you want to talk about. You can just talk about your, ex- well, like, positive experiences, negative experiences, whatever. But just this walking people through your experiences and, and how, how those experiences felt, I think is a gift and a service in of itself. Because you encourage people to, you're kind of inviting people to also consider their own experiences. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, if you, think about, if you think about all the really good conversations that you have with people, you know, like three drinks in late at night on some patio somewhere. It's like what people are doing, they're almost always sharing their experiences. Like, you know, you know, my dad used to do this and like, oh, you know, like, like at my last boy, like my last relationship, my boyfriend used to do that. Like it's, and it's hearing those stories that really, I think enriches our understanding and experience of, of humanity that you don't get in like a, in like a Twitter shit fight over, you know, politics at, at the, that, that level, right? Like you have to go all the way back. Like it's all, it, it can almost seem avoidant or effuse or like a smart ass. Cause some people ask these questions sarcastically, right? Like who hurt you? Like, yeah, you know, so the question, the question who hurt you is often used like in this like dismissive way, but yeah. it's actually, it's actually the question we should all be asking each other all the time. <laughs> like, like gently and with curiosity. Like, I really want to know like what you, what really happened? Like I want to like people and because people don't get to tell those stories, they end up, you know, uh, having a lot of anger and frustration and they, they express it fighting about other things. So that's one thing, um, experiences. The other thing, which is kind of parallel, is questions. Like just sharing your curiosity and, and trying to find things out. And I think this is even easier than sharing experiences because if you're sharing experiences, that's quite intimate. But asking mm. questions, you can just be like, huh, you know, I, I like, so even, even like nerdy shit, like, oh, my MacBook battery just failed me couple of hours ago like why why did that happen and then like all these other nerds will show up and be like oh it's because the new os big sir they have this change this thing and then you can be like thank you friend for sharing this thing like how did you how did you become so wise in the in the ways of batteries <laughs> and then they'll be like oh you know i, I studied and, and you, you can you can already see how that conversation can be fun yeah. and then lead to friendship Right, like right. You're just discussing a battery and like, how did you learn this? Like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, oh, you know, how, do you think that we're gonna have battery tech advance in our lifetimes? And then they're like, yeah, I'm very optimistic about lithium battery. And then someone else is like, no, you know, it's that's that that source of power will not break. like whatever. Like, we can have an hour long conversation about that. Everyone has fun. We learn about each other, and now we're friends, right? right. And yeah, so that's the kind of vibe. Um, asking questions, being curious, sharing your experiences. 
And then just generally be encouraging to other people. I think that's like the cheapest, easiest thing that you can do to be liked online that people don't realize you can do, which is literally just when you're scrolling through a timeline and you see people sharing their personal experiences. You, I mean, so you don't have to lie. You don't have to say anything that you don't believe. You don't have to be like, oh, you look great when you don't think the person looks great, right? But mm. you can just anytime you see a chance to say anything nice to anyone. Like Again, people are so used to receiving negative feedback online or just selfish and imperceptive feedback online that you know if you see someone post an outfit and you'll be like oh that's that's a cool ring i like your ring it's nice like that adds up you do a little bit of that regularly and people just like to have you around they like being seen they like being noticed in the way that they're trying to be noticed and it's just mm-hmm. it's so cheap to do and i've said elsewhere that you know trying to give sincere compliments that are precise um, it it trains your eye as well. It trains you to notice things about people, and uh, it that develops your taste. It's like it's like valuable to yourself as well. On top of being nice to people and then like building relationships, which is also nice to have. Yeah, I think those those three things. And um, the last thing I I usually include in my thread of like things I like to follow people for. Um, admitting failure, admitting when you're wrong, and being like, oh, you know, I used to think this, but I realized I was wrong about it. Like like being able to just say that um i think a lot a lot of good people respect that a lot of people are like huh like that person is is intellectually honest right or like just broadly mm-hmm. honest about you know like it demonstrates that they're not c- trying to pretend that they know everything and that they're always right. right all the time and yeah it's like battle stories war stories it's all connected right so the questions the curiosity the encouragement it's all kind of uh and you you, you can tie that back to friendly ambitiousness so being encouraging is about being a friend you know uh and, and also about encouraging people's ambitions, right? I, I, I noticed, so recently I saw somebody say something like, um, uh, what's his name? Packy McCormick. He tweeted saying, mm-hmm. I got mentioned by this famous blogger. I don't think I, I think I've topped, like, like I've peaked, right? Like he's, and you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's just kind of being, it's like the social thing to do. Like I've peaked. I'm never yeah. going to do anything better than this. And I'm like, I disagree, dude. I think you are just at the start of your career. You're going to do amazing things. And like, I, like, like I said, mm-hmm. I, I think before that I said, um, I'm going to be the weird guy here in the replies. Because <laughs> everyone, <laughs> everyone, everyone else is like, yay, congrats, well done, whatever. And I'm like, I'm right, going right. to be the weird one. I'm going to be the weird one and be like, you are going to be so much more. And like, you know, it's one of those things where maybe he didn't think about it again. But I think he replied something like, oh, you just like single-handedly something my career. He's being kind of hyperbolic about it. Yeah, but like, yeah. you know, that I would say there's like a 95% chance the person doesn't really think about it. But there's a 5% mm-hmm. chance that you might encourage someone to be more ambitious. Like, holy mm-hmm. shit. Like, again, every day, if you tweet like 20 times, casually, right? Like while you're on the train or just walking around, you spot an opportunity to encourage someone to be believe in themselves and to do more work. And do Like, just be greater. Like, the one in 10 times, one in 20 times when they do it, uh, you've just made the world a better place, right? Because the people around them are going to be inspired by their subsequent accomplishments. And we, if we repeat this every day for years, like eventually we'll be surrounded by extremely cool people who are, you know, courageous and, and doing great work. And like, that's what I want to see. It's kind of like you want to invite other people to play a game mm-hmm. and try to make the result positive such that you can play again tomorrow. Yes. I think that's a really good approach to kind of social interaction in general. That yes. I mean, obviously making positive interactions is, is kind of hard, especially uh, when 
you know, life can be difficult sometimes and you might be coming yeah. from a, from a difficult mood or something, but just being aware of the intentionality of, mm -hmm. of playing the game well means inviting others to come over, so to speak, you, you, and you know, you know, some, play with you. Yeah. Something that I think people don't realize they can do is that, so let's say you're in a difficult, you're having a bad mood. You can literally uh -huh. tweet, I'm having a bad mood today. Can someone, so it's like, you can, <laughs> you can, you, you can ask people for what you want. And they right. will give it to you. So like you can say, I'm having a bad mood today. Can you like you can ask for commiseration even? Like, can you mm -hmm. reply with uh, a grumpy can you tell me something that that made you pissed off, even if you want? Right. If or right. you can be like, Can you send me a cute gif? Or can you send right. me your favorite song? And like I found that people love to help when you give them a very specific request and it's something mm -hmm. that they can do easily. Like, because everyone else is scrolling in their phone, they are bored, they are annoyed, they're frustrated, whatever. And like, mm -hmm. if there's a very specific thing that someone can do to help somebody else, they almost always jump at the opportunity. It's just that uh, very often, I think people don't learn to um, calibrate their requests. So they ask mm -hmm. things that are, you know, like nobody wants to be, everyone wants to help somebody else in a small and discreet way that, but nobody wants to take on the responsibility of someone else's well-being. And mm -hmm. like the, the the being able to shift from that from from learning how to ask for help is like a tremendous like well it's life changing like when you learn how to ask yeah. for help and so you start receiving it and then when you, once you start receiving it it's real wealth and you become wealthier in the in the sense of like you have more options because people are supporting you and then from there you can help other people it's it's nuts yeah and in that case you're you're still inviting people. But so you were talking about admitting when you're wrong and mm -hmm. uh, Vivek T17 asks, what is the last thing you profoundly changed your mind on? Profoundly changed my mind on. So um, my, my first instinct is that, you know, it's not, it's not very dramatic because the nature of the way I think and the way I manage information is, has mm -hmm. always been, I'm always considering multiple possibilities at the same time. And like this, this is in, almost in my, like my DNA, right? Like, cause I'm a minority in Singapore and I, when I'm, when I grew up, there's like multiple religions around me. There's like Buddhist temples and mosques and Christian churches and everything. So I've always kind of had competing ideologies and competing worldviews on my mind at the same time. So it's like, I'm always considering like, oh, there's a chance that all of them might be correct in some way. There's a chance that all of them might be wrong. There's a chance, like, so I'm always very chancy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so in that sense, um, I've very rarely had to make like a profound shift. Like I was completely wrong about this and therefore now I'm doing the complete opposite because it's always, it's always mm -hmm. more of like, like I had underestimated the degree to which this is true. And so I changed it. I think an important one was, you know, so I've always believed in trying to be kind at some level, right? From my mm -hmm. earliest books that I've read as a child, you know, like some some amount of, of virtue and goodness is good. But at the same time, when I was growing up uh, as a teenager, I was very disagreeable and I was very uh, combative and argumentative. I, I, I like to think that this was from a place of love. So it wasn't like I was looking to beat people down. Like rather, I, mm -hmm. I, I was just, it's my love language. Like I'll argue with you and, and that's, that's, <laughs> that's how I show you my love, right? Like I will debate your ideas with you because I wish someone would debate with me. So it's a bit of projection, a bit of typical mind fallacy, whatever. And it like, shows respect. Like I, I respect your ideas enough to to do this game with you of like pushing. Yes, yeah. yeah. That, that, that was the, the what how I was projecting my values mm -hmm. onto the world and yeah. some people some people liked it but some people 
felt that I was attacking them or antagonizing them, which I never mm. meant to do, but that was right. how it was. And before I learned to see the nuance and op- options here, that was kind of a trade-off I was willing to make. I was like, like you know, I, when I was an angsty teenager, I read like Kurt Cobain quotes where he said things like, it's better to be hated for who you are than loved for who you're not. You know, like if you're going to mm. reduce the world to something that binary, like that's true. I think it's <laughs> yeah. true. Like if, if those are the only two options, like, yeah, I choose being hated. But those are not the only two options, right? You can be more sensitive. You can pay attention to people. You can see whether or not they are open to receiving a certain kind of energy. And so I have since kind of recalibrated to prioritize being kind first. And, you know, there's this, there's this book called Made to Stick and it's about marketing. But it, it's, it has profound applications beyond that. And, and basically, the, the, the insight there is, you know, if you have a message that you care about, like you think something's important that you want to share with the world, not only should you care about saying it, you should care about how it is received. Because again, mm. if you say it, but people don't receive it well and they don't, it doesn't stick with them, then it's like, what's the point of having said it? You, know, you just said it to feel better about yourself, but you're not making the change that you want to make. So you have to go and talk to people and pay attention to them and see how they respond and react. And once you learn how they receive it and then you figure out how to make your messages stick, then you become, you become much more powerful and you can spread, spread your gospel, whatever it is, much further. And similarly, I found that um, you know, if you are kind to people first before and like you you build a relationship. So sometimes there's someone saying something and I think it's stupid, but I, I've learned that telling them you if, if I don't have a relationship with them, if I tell them to their face, hey, I think this is stupid, they are not gonna receive it well. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. I have some old yeah. friends that I've we've been talking for years now. If I say, you know, hey, can I tell you something? I think I I think something is stupid, they'll be like, Oh, please tell me, you know, because we have that shared understanding, so they don't feel attacked. Right. And like once you understand that. Then you're like, okay, if I am serious about any particular outcome that I want, then I would have to analyze any situation before I, I put in the effort to, to act. And you know, sometimes when I say these things, people are like, holy shit, dude, that's so much effort. Who has the time to put in all that effort into figuring out all of these things? And I'm like, you know, I'm a lazy fucker. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing this because I have excess energy that I want to expend for free. <laughs> I'm right. doing this because I like it goes back to the, the Time Magazine president thing. Like I realized looking back that I spent so much time arguing with people and those arguments went nowhere. It achieved nothing. Like it, it was just sound and fury and like nothing changed, right? So I I put in the effort to to get to know people and to kind of analyze situations and see where things are going and to be strategic because I'm lazy, you know, because I want yeah. things to happen and I don't have a lot of time and energy to kind of waste. So I have to make sure that my time and energy is not wasted. So I have, I, whatever I'm doing, I try to make sure that it's fun or, I mean, so I just, I just said don't waste time and I can kind of argue the opposite. Like there is, there is this, this issue with being overly narrowly utilitarian. That's when you think you know what the outcome of something is going to be. And there are a whole class of things where you can't really know for sure. Like you can't really know what wonderful things are going to happen to you when you go for a random walk somewhere in the city, right? You don't know, you might meet someone, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. But there are some things that you can, you can always know, there are some things you can know slightly better, right? And once you've had like a hundred arguments with strangers, like you kind of, yeah, yeah, like 19, 98 out of a hundred times, it's not going to end well. Maybe two times you'll make a friend, cool. But like, you might as well start with trying to make friends and then like 90 out of a hundred times you actually do make a friend. Tashin Fogelman wanted me to ask, what old social norms are violated by social media use? But I'm going to use that as a platform to talk about social media. 
which mm-hmm. is um, that social media is clearly kind of changing the um, the way we interact. And there were all these old social norms, you know, back yeah. when kids would go outside and play baseball with their friends and, and you know, a random lot versus now where, where socialization looks very different. Um, yeah. So I want to think about like in the future, how can we prepare or be poised to take advantage of future social technology. I think this gets back to the way you see Twitter, which is that like we're building a set of um, skills that mm-hmm. is not just specific to Twitter. You know, it's it's not yeah. like we're playing some one little tiny game, but it's really a bigger social game. So how do you think about the future of social technology and how uh, social media use may continue to change social norms? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's going to be a range of responses to how people respond, right? So uh, mm-hmm. I I used to be uncertain about where I should position myself on this because it's it's kind of tempting to try and be like a like an analyst or spokesperson for like the biggest and broadest social trends and and you know how will most people respond to things. But I, I reflected on that and I realized that one, it's very difficult to figure out and two, it doesn't really excite me. And I think what really excites me is to be at the absolute cutting edge like of like, you know, sometimes I describe what we're doing on Twitter and what or what we could be doing on Twitter is really being the tip of the spear of the next golden age of, of like human, yeah. not the flourishing of human knowledge. And that's yeah. not something that everybody is going to participate in. And, you know, part of it is that not everyone wants to. Part of it is that not everyone has the opportunity to, you know, they might, you know, if you have dependents and kids to take care of, it's like harder. And mm-hmm. like, um, you know, um, so I will focus on the latter part because I, I do think that you know uh, a lot of what is becomes mainstream subsequently it usually started out weird you know so like the first the first hundred thousand people who married someone that they met on the internet were weird right like it was a weird thing to do but now millions of people have done it and like meeting your spouse online is like it's just normal it's like it's, it's, there's a graph you can see right the graph now shows that most people meet their partners on dating apps and, and whatever now yeah and yeah. yeah so similarly uh you know people are increasingly getting jobs online people are increasing and yeah all of this is just the start i feel i feel like uh you know it, it's we are still in the early days and it always feels strange to say that because again like we're always looking, moving into the future, looking in the rearview mirror. So we can't really see how dramatic things will be. Uh, but so your question again was, um, how will the norms shift? So I, I'll only speak for for the handful of us. So like the one, 0.1% of extremely mm-hmm. online people, which again, I can have a clearer sense of. And there's a possibility it might trickle out to elsewhere, other people, but I can't promise that. I don't know that for sure. But but yeah, so <laughs> that elaborate <laughs> thing aside... Yeah, so, you know, uh, I think Connor recently tweeted something like, oh, San Francisco is, like, becoming Detroit. And I, I kind of joked and be like, no, that can't be true. Like, if, if San Francisco is Detroit, what's Japan? And then somebody else replied, the internet is Japan. And I was like, oh, shit, because that's mm. true. Like, the reason I am not living in San Francisco, where most of my mutuals are, or New York, where the second most of my mutuals are, is because I can live on the internet, which is... You know, mm. it, it allows me like the best of both worlds. I can I can be driving distance from my family and I can also have friends around the world, right? So it's like, 
increasingly, I think there will be this subset of people who have this uh, international state of mind. Like uh, we will find mm-hmm. more and more people from uh, other countries that that aren't currently a part of our social graphs. And so there will be this this more global sense of of being and and conceiving of of reality. And that will have implications that are very hard to to like the second order and third order effects of that are, are difficult to to describe. But I almost feel like you know at my most idealistic and at my most manic, I'm like, if we can have sufficient high functioning friends in a social graph that spans the entire planet, and enough of these people become you know because because they help to unblock each other. There's this great line from oh, I can't remember his name, but it's one of my mutuals, um, and he was saying that. A scene is just a group of people who unblock each other very fast, mm-hmm. like re- relative to, you know, so like jazz musicians or whatever, like they yeah. challenge each other, you know, the Beatles, any any group of excellence is when people, so most groups, they have like social regulation where everyone kind of keeps each other in check, like like there's like a steady-ish rate of growth or whatever. But like in a scene, um, and I think the extremely online scene is is... It's a meta scene with a bunch of subscenes, and uh, if we continue to unblock each other at an, at mm. an accelerating rate, right? What you're gonna see is more and more people are gonna make more and more money online. Uh, again, again, it's like some some criticisms of that is like, oh, well, not everyone can do that. I'm like, yeah, that's true, but this is not about everyone. This is about zero point one percent of people. And you know, you're gonna see. I'm already seeing some of my friends who are visual artists, like they've been mm-hmm. doing it for about a year, and they are getting a lot better. And I expect them to continue to get a lot better. And so it's like, yeah. oh, I'm casually friends with like one of the best artists in the world. Like that's gonna that's gonna be a thing like five years from now. Like we we mm-hmm. will know some of the people. Like so we can e- if we each accelerate everyone's personal development. The CEO of Shopify, Toby Tobias, mm-hmm. uh, he gave a talk in like 2013 up at Accelerate Ottawa. And he was saying that, uh, you know, he basically had like his own personal enlightened, I mean, I describe it as enlightenment. It might be a loaded word for other people. But he just came to the realization that, you know, we are at any one point in time, we the life that we live is kind of constrained by the box that we are living in. Like whatever those assumptions are, whatever your constraints, your, your bottleneck is that you don't want to address. And he said, okay, like once you once you realize this, you might want to go on a journey of personal development and growth. And so you you kind of tap around the walls of your life, whatever that means to you, you know, investigate everything around you, kind of kind of aggressively and resourcefully and relentlessly, right? Like a like mm. think about how like a parkour artist might be, you know, jumping and dancing, or like a skateboarder kind of being very aggressive with experimenting with the with the landscape right just really trying everything out and like be like that inside your own head with your own life and try it out and find the escape find find like the every box that you're in there's like a way out and so you, you find the way out and then now you're in a bigger box and then you find the way out again and you're in a bigger box mm. and it's very difficult for the person inside a specific box to see where the opening of their box is because of the nature of boxes and people <laughs> but yeah. we can we can help each other see like we can very often like if you find the right people to give you feedback, you can find each other's openings and like guide each other and challenge each other to it. And I think every great scene in human history must have had like a dozen people who did that for each other, right? Like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis telling Tolkien, you, I, I don't know what he said, but at some point I imagine he said, fucking publish the Lord of the Rings, dude. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> like, like it's, it's not a thing he could have done. I, I bet that the Lord of the Rings is not something that one man could have published by himself. You know, I bet a lot of great things 
are things that men could not have, men and women could not have done by themselves. They needed to be challenged and supported by other individuals that they respected and admired who challenged them to do the crazy thing. And so, uh, um, the Shopify CEO, he was saying that, oh, once you learn this, you realize that, okay, one good way to do this, and this was like, he was like, this was like 1997, right? He said, one mm. way to do this is to start a company. And then you start a company and then you build a healthy company culture where you encourage people who are like this and you hire people who are like this and you kind of at work challenge each other to be bigger and like greater and and do that that was in 2013 and shopify today they, you know they they went public they are making a lot of money uh, i am like a happy shopify user and i i bought stock on the day they ipo based on toby's uh just i love toby I, I see like i feel like that's a guy that gets it you know he really just understands people and and the market right so and and shopify mm. has since like exploded in in value i mean so people are always thinking about like facebook and like uh you know f-a-a-n-g or whatever like those are really really big companies yeah. but if you, if you kind of look at if you look at shopify it's smaller but it's on a tremendous trajectory and this it's, it's amazing to me to look at that and to look at toby and like the things that he was saying like a decade before uh, like you know uh, five six years before success like it it's kind of clear. It was clear to me then. I can say that it was clear to me then that that guy was on a trajectory, and that's mm-hmm. because he understood the value of like, and he was talking about things like high. When he hires people, he kind of wants them to stay for a long time. Like he doesn't want them to right. you know be like you come here, you work for a year, two years, and you you live. And and I know people who like multiple people who have worked at Shopify for like ten years plus, right? And their careers are there, their friends are there. And you know this, I didn't. I didn't mean this to become like a Visa celebrates Shopify. Like, like it's not about. <laughs> a, it's not about a company. It's just about some guy who had a, a perspective mm. on personal development and growth, and how that he applied it to his his crew, right? In his case, like his colleagues and his his the people he hires, his employees. And it yeah. does seem to me like he created a great place to work where people seem to be having a good time and they are making good money and the company is successful, like. And I believe that, you know, Toby was operating, he's like in his, I think maybe late 40s or early 50s. And he was operating kind of before social media really took off, you know. And I feel like we no longer necessarily need to start a company. And like we, we can kind of do this in a, for each other in a distributed way. Like we can have an international scene. I mean, there's definitely some value in like waking up every day and seeing the same ambitious people and like challenging each other and seeing what work they've done. Like I spent... I spent a couple of weeks in SF and uh, I was there the same time that Anna Gutt was there and Mason and a few other people. And it was just, it, it, it was nice. It was nice to wake up every day and um, overhear people having passionate conversations. So it's like, yeah. I haven't even had my coffee yet. And like, I open my eyes first thing in the morning and I can hear Anna and Mason arguing about like education and pedagogy. And I'm like, wow, that's that's so <laughs> different than, you know, like it's, it's that that's like a competitive advantage that, for for like the development of of an of a mind, right? Like if you want to be yeah. really smart and you want to really be, like, and again, I I think people over-index on IQ as as something that makes people smart, and I think even going on a, doing a lot of podcasts makes you smarter because you you learn to kind of identify what are the things that are worth saying that that resonate with people, what does not, right? And and mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, I have this more procedural action-based model of intelligence and and um just the impact that we can have on, have on each other and yeah so circling all the way back you were asking about social technologies and and um i feel that the bandwidth has 
increase the bandwidth of so even in my lifetime right like i i had a youtube account in 2005 and i had a mm-hmm. shitty webcam but i didn't have the courage to make youtube videos talking to the camera like i didn't have the courage i didn't have nobody nobody suggested to me visa you should make youtube videos like so it's, right. it's just it's kind of scary i made a few videos of myself playing guitar and i uploaded that and that was now that i look back on it it was like it was my way of like making a bid you know like making a request to the universe like oh i'm gonna upload a guitar video and see what happens and like nothing really happened you know it's just some guy who's not very good at guitar uploading a few videos nothing much and what i i would do now if i could go back and and what i try to do for others right if i could go back i would be like dude you're a smart kid you have a lot of interesting ideas. You should upload YouTube videos every day, talking into the camera, saying what you think. And like mm-hmm. initially, nobody might reply, but like you will not regret doing this because you'll build a body of work. 20 years from now, when you're famous or whatever, people will go back to your earliest videos and be like, wow, he started so small and that will inspire other people. You know, it's like, I didn't have that presence in my life. And if I did, mm-hmm. I think I would be even more, you know, I'll have a larger audience. I'll be more successful. I mean, that's not important. Like, I, the thing is, I, I am where I am now and I can provide that support for other people. And again, I think the more people we have kind of... Um, really encouraging others, right? Like I think we use the word encourage so casually, but like if you mm-hmm. think about giving someone courage, nudging them towards doing difficult and scary things and reassuring them that you can do it. Even if you fail, I will love and respect and admire you for trying. And mm-hmm. like, I would love to see what happens. Like, like we can provide that, that structure and context for other people. And they will, some percent, like some of them might try it and realize it's not for them. And we can be like, that's totally fine, dude. Like, it's cool of you to have tried. And then some of them will be like insanely successful beyond anything we can imagine. And it's like, wow, we just need, you know, one in-group billionaire, right? And that will that will change, that could potentially change things dramatically. Or maybe they'll become evil. And <laughs> I don't know about that. But like, you know, the outcome is not the point, right? The point is right. that just to live in that space of, I, I wake up in the morning and I'm some guy in some some city, some country, somewhere in the world, but I have mm. a dozen people who are encouraging me and they want to see me succeed and I will not let them down. Right? Like that's a beautiful way to live. And I think that's I think more and more people when they see us doing this, they will be inspired to try and do the same for themselves and their peers. Yeah. To wrap up the episode, I was gonna ask you about how uh, you said you look at cults and try to do the opposite of that. And I was <laughs> I was wondering, you know, why why cults and, and why that why that approach? But I'm thinking about it now that it does have something to do with encouragement, which is that um, cults by and large are um, incentivized to cut off everything except for a specific ideology, like everything is yeah. in service to that one ideology, whereas yeah. encouragement, you're, you're, you're empowering people to do their own thing, to branch out. Exactly. Um, so it's it's again it's this open versus closed formulation. Oh wow, that's true. Yeah, I wanted to invite you to speak more on that if if uh, if you have something more to say about why you don't want to go the approach of cults. Oh, that's yeah, that's that's so beautiful that you connected those things. Yeah, uh, I've you know my criticism of like every cult ever and every cultist ever is that ah oh, man, you you guys lack imagination. <laughs> you know, like you're 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 playing you're playing so small. Like you're trying to bring a bunch of people outside of society and, and start so I mean okay maybe uh, you know like the premise might be if you start something truly brilliant like maybe I, I don't know I, I don't like the odds you know like I don't think I'm that great I don't think I can be like a, you know so when you have a cult leader and a group of people away from society like 
you do get the benefit of kind of losing the the noise of society of a, of a big city or whatever but mm-hmm. like you know the noise is there's some bad in the noise but there's also good and you're you're kind of stripping away the good of of city life as well for i think the intellectual mind well again we can argue about this like so I, i've been reading emerson and emerson argues very beautifully for the value of uh, nature in for the for the intellectual mind and he's right you know it's, it's, it's the same it's a solitude thing but i also think that um you know, I'm on the side of cities. I think I've I've always I've thought of a library as like a city of minds, right? Like a and the internet as a bustling megapolis of minds and thoughts, right? And mm-hmm. uh, uh, I always just want to see more. I want to see more diversity, more. And yeah, uh, it, it it bugs me sometimes that the word diversity has come to mean like this corporate, racial, ethnic, whatever thing. Like I'm talking, you know, this this it, we might need a new word at this point, but it's just like a flourishing of many different ways of being, many different mm. ways of seeing, different ways of thinking. Like if I had a commune of a hundred people who think I'm the shit, like I'd get bored like in a month. Like what, <laughs> what, what, are, you, what are you guys doing? Like I I, I want to see people surprise me, right? I want to see people do cool and new, unexpected things. Like and that I think I think cults cults reduce the possibility of surprise like i mean there's, there's there's only a bad surprise that happens eventually when you find out that everyone's doing some horrible shit but like the odds of like a, a serendipity in a cult out in the wilderness like that's pretty low right you need you need these these weak ties and and casual accidents and, and all these like un, unexpected surprises and yeah so i want to see flourishing on on many different fronts i want the world to surprise me you know i i don't want to i don't want to come across as someone who knows so sometimes people ask me like oh you know you say you want to assemble this crew and like what is the expedition you want to take that crew on like you know you're saying this friendly ambitious thing you want to assemble the the best minds but what do you want them to do i mean if i claim to know like you should shoot me you know because Mm -hmm. it's like what i want to see is like i want to see where that conversation goes you know when you get 12 of the most interesting people on the planet and you have to introduce them for dinner, but you don't tell them what to talk about. And then you kind of see where the conversation goes. And I believe that the conversation will go somewhere interesting that I could not have conceived of of my own. <laughs> so it's like trusting trusting the, intellig- the, the shared super intelligence of like that group of people versus imposing my expectation of, of what I want. Speaking of having conversations that you could not conceive of. I expected this to be a conversation about accessibility and it turned <laughs> into a conversation about how to play the infinite game, yes. uh, which which is quite, quite beautiful. Thank you so much, Visa, for coming on. Thank you for having this wonderful conversation with me. And I, I want to re-listen to it right now because <laughs> I feel like there was so much there to really uh, to work through and, and to focus on about being encouraging and inviting others and, and how we can do that in our own ways. So thank you for giving me so much to think about and work on. Thank you for having me. That's so much fun. What an awesome show. I personally really needed to hear this message about encouragement and creation and exploration. So thank you so much to Visa for coming on and having this conversation with me. You can visit his website at visaconv.com and you can follow him on Twitter at V-I-S-A-K-A-N-V. Buy his book, Friendly Ambitious Nerd, and keep your eyes peeled for his new book, Introspection. 
You can subscribe to this show on becomingcreature.substack.com. And I would like to thank Frank IV for this great intro music. Thank you to Murphy Chicken for the theme guitar. And thank you to Foreshaper for the show art. I will see you next time.